Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman. I'm a voice actor, voiceover coach, podcaster, mythology scholar, and you're watching the Points of Experience. Everybody, here we are past 30 episodes of the Points of Experience podcast. This is an insane milestone. We've been doing this for over, I think it's eight months now, uh, basically uh, once a week for the past eight months. I think that adds out to math, right? Beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, math, 30 episodes over X amount of months. Yeah, 30 episodes. It is insane. Uh, hey, Keith, are you here, buddy? Keith? Keith? Yes, sir. I'm right here. What an experience this has been for us. I just want to get a quick little uh, recap for you. What has it been like being a part of 30 episodes of this podcast? It has been an absolute blessing to meet some of these people, the people I've looked up to in digital person. Hopefully one day we'll actually get to meet them in real life. And the knowledge that these people impart and the experiences that they give us are unmistakably experiences you need to have. That's yeah. the reason why these are the points of experience, because they're going to help you and your career or your aspirations. Could not have said that better myself, Keith. And I want to further that point right now by saying we have a guest right now who is kind of the the embodiment of everything that I would like this podcast to be. He quite literally has a podcast that talks in great length and depth with other voice actors and I think he also has agents and managers, people surrounding the voice acting industry. Obviously, we talk with other people here. We're not only in the voice acting spectrum of things, but those of you, uh, many of you might know him from his performances in Helsing, Zolkart, Itachi, and Naruto, Winston, and Overwatch, and countless animes and video games, titles like Final Fantasy. I mean, Crispin Freeman. Uh, he he's quite literally been one of the reasons why I think I've been able to pursue this career the way that I have. Having access to his podcast, Voice Acting Mastery, which we will talk about in the episode, um, it really gave me a sense like I can do this. The fact that he is so talented, the fact that he is so knowledgeable, the fact that he is so giving with everything about this industry, and he wants to see other people succeed knowing that there's enough food at the table for everybody to eat and it's 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 important to him and he shows that through the podcast and his own coaching and his scholarships i mean it is man it's it's kind of everything that i would like and i hope to be uh as an artist a performer a contributor to this career i really look up to crispin he has been in more ways than he can imagine, just so integral into me pursuing this uh, career and job. And he he had me on his podcast. What? Uh, what an insane world to live in when someone um, as talented as he is and thought that I would have any sort of um, <laughs> value to his audience. But nonetheless, I am so excited for you all to hear this conversation, to to see how stories have influenced him and his love for certain things have shaped him. Um, and the things that he has pursued in his life, the the paths that he has taken, and how much of it is is carried with him through everything he does. Um, just listening to, listening to him was was like poetry in a way. He has such a way with words, and I I think you all really need to uh, sit back, relax. If you're working out, really, you know, maybe it's time to go sit by the uh, the fire and listen to this because uh, Crispin Freeman has such beautiful insight about life, performance acting, 
everything you could want coming up for you on the Points of Experience podcast. Thanks, guys. Crispin, hello. Paul, hello. <laughs> uh, this is by far um, a very full circle experience for me. Um, for anybody here who's listening who hasn't saw, I was very privileged and honored for you to invite me onto your podcast, Voice Acting Mastery. And I have been an avid listener. So for anybody here who <laughs> is listening to this podcast, it would be very rare that you don't also listen to Voice Acting Mastery. But... I would still like to do a little bit of getting to know you for in the rare chance somebody here doesn't know uh, certain things from your historical background. Um, But I I really want to take an opportunity today because this is, I think, going to be one of my favorite podcasts because I've gotten to learn so much about you and you've shared so much about your life and your stories through your podcast. I'd love to kind of talk about things that maybe you haven't talked about before, if we can figure out what those might be. <laughs> it sure. may be hard, but I, I would love to to do that. And uh, again, to reiterate, um, for anybody here who isn't familiar with Voice Acting Mastery, it is absolutely kind of the pinnacle of what I would say anyone who's interested in voice acting uh, should be listening to. It is something that like was a foundational building block of my career, and I... I, I I suggest it in everything that I talk about. It really is kind of was the number one resource I was was looking towards. So, um, you know, if you need to pause this podcast right now and go listen to every episode of VAM, I will not feel bad. You can come circle back here. There's oh, a length. How many? One hundred ninety episodes at this point of voice My acting gosh. mastery. So what? Yeah. That's insane. It's crazy. It's been going for eleven years. Wow. So, yeah, since since 2011. Since yeah. uh, was it July July of 2011? I believe. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Does it feel like you've been doing it that long? Not really. Um, it's odd. But and thank you again for all of your kind words about the podcast. That's you know I'm I'm, I'm blushing here on camera. If you can't tell already. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no. I mean, we we I started the podcast and I did it as a uh, biweekly podcast. So every other week I would put an episode out, and they were shorter episodes to begin with, and they would sort of vary between straight lecture episodes interview episodes and Q&A. Uh, I had a voicemail people could call and do Q&A stuff. And I did that up until about episode 100. And then I sort of changed the format a little bit. Um, and then when it's, I wanted to go sort of more deep dive into interviews. And from episode 100 until 190, um, the, ep- the episode lengths got way longer <laughs> because I was going so in-depth with different people. Um, and uh, so it's it, there, there, it comes out now once a month. Ever since episode 100, it comes out once a month. But each episode episode is usually now close to an hour long, whereas I think yeah. when it first came out, each episode I was aiming to be like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and now it's like, nope, here you go, here, you know, <laughs> big dump. Um, uh, so, but I try, I try to make sure that even with those larger episode sizes, that I'm making the information digestible and understandable in an easy way. Um, but it's gotten to that point where I, you know, I need to make sure that I'm appealing to, I don't know, people like you who have been listening to the episode from the beginning. It's, it's sort of like, you know, growing up with the story or growing Growing up with a podcast, you know, if you're if you're more experienced, I want to make sure you're still getting stuff out of uh, the podcast. It's not simply saying, "Here's how you plug in your mic." Right? After <laughs> a while, you sort of hopefully have figured that out. Yes, I would. I would imagine that people have at least gotten that far. But I, I think the some what you just said is so true, and you have continually provided new uh, perspectives on how to approach what is 
at the end of the day, a very subjective career pursuit. You know, it, there's no one size fits all on how to do this. And I think the best part about listening to you and listening to guests and you truly are a great as 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 much as there's information that you are getting from listening to the podcast, you are a great host because you ask questions and you have a genuine curiosity. And I think I've digested a similar kind of sense of curiosity. Obviously, I'm sitting here doing a podcast myself, but you really are able to kind of bring on guests and see like, oh, that's how that person did it. That's completely different than the previous guest. And they both are at kind of similar uh, points in their in their career. So it's like, oh, I can do this or I can do that. I could do this. And you continuously keep asking questions that are uh, different and, and and lead you to say like, oh, that's how that happened. It, you know, it wasn't just like you someone knew a famous person and that led them to having a career. It's it's always a very unique experience. And I love the the journey you've you've taken us on. What what before I kind of jump into more stuff for you, what is the thing now that you are finding most exciting about doing a podcast after it's been so long and you've kind of tackled that same question over and over again or the the major questions over and over again? What are the things that you're finding most pleasurable about, you know, doing this every month? Well, yeah, it's interesting you say that. I think by 100 episodes, I had probably tackled the most common questions that had come up either through my own uh, desire to talk about them because of my experience teaching. I've also been teaching now all that time as well. Uh, I think I started teaching a year before I did started doing the podcast. So, you know, while I've been doing the podcast, I've been working with student after student after student. So that helps me understand what the challenges are. But after about 100 episodes, I think I had covered most of the most common to- topics that were coming up. And so what became fascinating to me then was each individual voice actor's journey towards mastery, towards success. And that's why I don't, the people I choose to bring on the podcast are very particular. I don't just choose the most famous people. I choose the people who I think have had the most unique journey or they are the most different from me, that they've had some sort of path that is just wildly different from the way that I approach things or think about things. So I'm always looking for those unique perspectives on how to approach voice acting. Because as you say, um, voice acting, uh, creating a successful voice acting career is more alchemy than chemistry. There is no recipe. There's a certain difficult to quantify je ne sais quoi. Um, there's, a certain, <laughs> there's a certain mixture of how this all works because all of us are such different animals. And so understanding how all these different animals approached their path to success they all have different instruments. They all have different mentalities, different uh, acting approaches. That's what's fascinating to me. So that now I can interview somebody like Darren DePaul and we can geek out about, um, you know, European clowning uh, theater technique. Um, or I can talk to, I just did uh, doing an interview with Courtney Taylor um, and, and her approach, which was whenever, whenever someone told her that she couldn't do something, that would inspire her to do it even more, uh-huh. which is like totally the opposite of me. If they have told me, uh, Crispin, you really suck at this. I've been like, oh, I don't come back. <laughs> like, we have totally different psychologies. And, you know, there's a famous Russian parable that says the same boiling water that softens the potato boil hardens the egg. Right. Like everybody's a different thing. And just applying the same activity is not going to get you the same result, depending Mm -hmm. on who you're dealing with. And that's what becomes fascinating to me is that everybody has such different approaches to it. Yeah. And 
every instrument, I, and I think it's kind of a mixture of where did you kind of grow up? What was the environment you were surrounding with, surrounded with in addition to what your DNA might be or what your parents might have did, what we were exposed to? So all of that information and experience is informing kind of who you become as uh, this artist later in your life if you choose to pursue voice acting or acting or anything similar. And that's why it's always so great when I meet someone from a wildly different background than myself and it's like, oh, wait, that's that's what you bring and it's totally different than me and we're not in we may be up for the same role but we're totally two different flavors of of food that it's like which of these one may not be wrong and one may not be right but which is the one that you're just thinking is resonating right for the for the character uh, when it comes to booking things and I've always found that fascinating and building com camaraderie around fellow voice actors in that way too because I think everybody, uh, especially when I was starting out, I saw a lot of people who were very eager to kind of win or be the person who is going to beat out everybody else. I, I was quickly able to avoid that uh, sensibility and be like, no, we're all in this together. Like we all are just different, sh you know, we're different styles and uh, this might be right for this one and it may not be right for the next one. Uh, just because even, even if you just fit the specs they were looking for, they might just want something different. For you, what did you realize, you know, doing the podcast and giving back to the community in, in that way, what became the inspiration 10 years ago when, you know, you could be just focusing on building your, you know, career still and, and doing all of those things, you know, just pursuing a, a monetary lifestyle at that point, you'd already been successful. What was it about, you know, different than teaching that you wanted to bring more value with the podcast? What, why specifically was it through a podcast that you wanted to um, speak on what you're, you've been speaking on for 10 plus years? Well, I've always had a penchant for teaching. Um, my, my middle name is actually McDougal, the Scottish side of my family, uh -huh. McDougal Freeman. But there's a running joke in my family that my middle name is actually McGoogle. Um, <laughs> that, you know, don't ask Crispin something you, unless you really want to know about it, right? Um, and, and so I've always had a penchant for teaching and, and I think I'm pretty good at it because I'm, I'm usually pretty good at taking a, um, an activity or an idea and articulating it or conceptualizing it in such a way that it becomes easily digestible for somebody else. Um, and I don't know if it's like the Greek philosopher in me um, or what, but I'm, I'm always trying to make sure I'm defining my terms and defining my concepts clearly and sort of working out all the logical uh, extensions of what is coming at me. Um, and, and that is, I have a certain fascination with that as a, a sort of, uh, it's, I guess it's my Aquarian nature. Um, and Aquarians tend to be sort of fascinated by ideas. You know, pe people call us intellectuals. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're like, we're smarter than anyone else. Yeah. It's just that ideas fascinate us. Like whereas for other people, like physical things fascinate them. Like for me, ideas are physical. Like they, they, they sort of fascinate me. And so I think, I think what happened was I kept going to conventions and I kept just getting asked the same question over and over again. How do I become a voice actor? And the problem is it's a very easy question to ask, but it's almost impossible for me to answer at a convention panel or while we're walking down the hallway at the, ho at the hotel. Mm -hmm. Because the only thing I can do in like 20, 30 seconds is something pithy like know thyself, which makes <laughs> me sound like the Oracle of Delphi, but doesn't give you anything you can go home and practice. Like you, it's not actionable. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to answer that question more effectively. 
And so that's where the podcast came from. It was literally just trying to create an FAQ, um, which is similar to what D. Bradley Baker has done with his website, sure. I Want to Be a Voice Actor. You know, He's just done it in a text format. Um, and I wanted to do it in an audio format um, and audio only. Right. I like I know we call this a podcast, but there's video involved. Right. Yeah. But it was very important to me that it literally was an audio only podcast. There was no visuals because if there's anything you have to do as a voice actor, is you have to get very good with your ears. And I realize that many people may learn visually and that's great. That's fine. I don't want to take that away from you. But man, if you can't hear the tiny nuances in what people are doing with their voices, with accents, with timbre, with tonality, with placement, um, you're going to be sunk. All right. You're going to have a hard time playing with the big girls and the big boys. And and so part of the idea of putting it in the format, it's it's like the, the Marshall McLuhan in me. You know, the medium is the message. I yeah. put it in that medium because it forces you to have to listen closer. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and if it makes you listen more than once, great. You're practicing your listening even more. Um, so that's it, it was sort of OK. To me, the best way to do an FAQ about voice acting would probably be to do it audio. Let's try it that way and see what happens. And and it sort of it, it, it became possible popular and blew up and and I thought okay well there's something there's something going on here and then it, it it's it became a thing that also helped people get to know me as a teacher so that they could discover whether it was something if I was something they uh they wanted to train with me or take class with me. And I was able to introduce them to all of my colleagues who I think are extremely talented teachers, mm -hmm. uh, people who either do accent training or can do demo production or you know, acting classes or whatever, you know, so that you can get uh, that exposure because my acting training was so eclectic and I'm so grateful for that. Like I, I had such an international uh, acting training experience with so many different types of acting techniques that it made me have to figure out my own alchemical formula for what was going to work. Mm. A couple of things there. It just reminded me of when I was in, uh, in theater school. I used to have a teacher who she was my acting teacher and she wouldn't even watch us. She would turn to the side and she would listen to us because she felt that it was a better way of to her to see if she believed whether or not what we were saying to be truthful. She's like, I don't need to watch you. I just need to hear. And I, and it's so true for voice acting. It's like when you remove the element of sight and you can only focus on the, the word it's, it really boils down to, are you speaking truthfully? Do you believe, do I believe what somebody is saying? And that's something we have to do as voice actors. We don't have a uh, big emote emotes we can do. Granted, maybe the characters are doing it on screen, but uh, as a performance, to book the job, especially in the audition room, I feel like you have to bring all of that. It is a, it's, it's only an audio uh, a format when you're auditioning and somebody's hearing you. Yeah, see, and that brings up already an interesting dilemma. Two, two stories I can think of. One, when I was at a theater training uh, program at the British American Drama Academy in Oxford, we were rehearsing all these different scenes, and I was with my scene partner, a buddy of mine, a friend, and we were in these dorms at Oxford, and sometimes the walls could be a little thin, and we could hear people rehearsing their scenes in other rooms next to us, right? And so me and my friend, uh, we took a break while we were rehearsing our scene. We're just sort of sitting, thinking about what we're going to do next, and we're hearing our our classmates in the other room and my friend turns to me and says i can tell they're acting i mean i can just tell by the way they're talking that they're performing yeah i shouldn't be able to tell that i should not be able to tell the difference between when they're rehearsing the scene and when they're just talking to each other as people it mm -hmm. should sound the same through the wall 
Like it should have the same intensity, the same natural, even though I can't exter- uh, hear every word. And I thought, God, dude, you're really right. <laughs> However, conversely, I, when I was training at that program later, I was in a class and I'm nearsighted. And at the time when I was younger, the contact lenses that they prescribed to me were these hard contact lenses hmm. because they were supposed to help shape my eye. But I don't know. Anyway, if you can imagine <laughs> hard contact lenses in a dusty theater environment, not a great mix. Doesn't and I wasn't, good. yeah, and I wasn't as nearsighted then as I might be now. So a lot of times I would just get away with trying not to wear them. Because uh-huh. right? I didn't want to wear glasses. And I could read the script just fine. I just couldn't see my scene partner. And so I was doing a scene, and I think it was like from a Harold Pinter play. And if you know anything about Harold Pinter's writing, on the, on the page it looks very pedestrian. It looks very mundane, like no big deal. But people are like divorcing and betraying each other. Like there's all sorts of deep subtext going on underneath the text that, that's not immediately obvious. And it was some scene with me and my scene partner, this girl, and uh, we were like having breakfast or something in the scene. Um, and we're doing the scene, and I can hear what she's saying, and I'm not looking at her because I'm looking down at my script. And, and my acting teacher goes, look at her. And I go, why? I don't need to. I can, I've got it in the script. I can hear what she's doing. He goes, look at her. And I picked my eyes up, and I looked at her, and she was crying. Now, that was what was appropriate for the scene because we were, we were basically divorcing over breakfast, right? Mm-hmm. And so she, as the character, is crying. But because I couldn't see her, because I wasn't looking at her, I wasn't picking up the subtext, the subtlety of her performance. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, crap, i got to wear my contacts, right? Like, I have, to be, I have to be responding in the moment to what my uh, acting partner is giving me rather than anticipating what's going on. Mm. And I have, to, I have to take in all the information, not just the information that lines up with my preconceived notion of how I'm going to perform this part. I have a question then. So in today's world where a majority of things are not in uh, group records and we are left to, you know, oftentimes we're recording solo or, you know, you're auditioning from home and you don't have the the luxury, I'll call it now, to have somebody else even to act off of or to be it's present with you. It's a shame it's even called a luxury, but yes. Yeah. It's uh, What do you think then is the what, – what, what way can we reintroduce that type of um, – connectivity with whether it be a scene partner or uh, getting ourselves back into remembering these other cues that we can take in as actors when we are, you know, a voice actor to say, what are, what are things we can do to re- uh, bring that back into the equation? Well, ideally, you do have a scene partner there. I mean, that's why whenever we record domestic American television animation, you know, we, they try to do it in a group record because you yeah. want to hear the interactivity. But you are correct that it has now become, quote, a luxury, even though I would argue it's a necessity, <laughs> um, to have to record by yourself for things like anime dubbing or live action dubbing. Um, and also for most video games, we record all by ourselves. And I would say that you know, I always compared it to recording an entire orchestra one instrument at a time. It's not ideal. Yeah. Right. And so much pressure is then put on the director to try to make sure that this is all going to work together well. Mm. But it's sort of like, you know, green screen when the characters aren't quite looking at each other and it doesn't quite, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's not the best. It'd be better. So what happens is when actors are in that moment where you've taken away all of their scene partners, they have to rely on their muscle memory of what it's like when the scene partner is actually there. 
So this is like watching um, Gene Kelly dance with Jerry Mouse or Dick Van Dyke dance with the Penguins in Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. right? The, the Penguins aren't really there. But Dick Van Dyke has so much experience, so much mileage as a dancer, and he's so good as a physical actor, that he can play pretend that they're still there, even though they're not. And he can trick you, he can fool you into thinking they're actually there. But it also reminds me of what Ian McKellen went through when he was doing The Hobbit, right? Ian McKellen had played Gandalf through all the Lord of the Rings films. But in the beginning of The Hobbit, there's the famous scene where all the dwarves show up at Bag End and they're just eating all of Bilbo's food. Yeah. And so you have 13 dwarves in a hobbit and there's only one actor who's supposed to be full size and that's Ian McKellen. So they had to film him separately from all the other actors and they had to you know green you know Ian McKellen's on a green screen as Gandalf and he was acting to tennis balls. Because that's what they do. They put tennis balls on, on sticks as supposed to be the head of whoever they... And Ian McKellen was reduced to tears. He's like, mm. this is not why I became an actor. Like, he couldn't stand it, mm-hmm. right? But then we as actors have to literally put dots on ourselves if we're doing motion capture and, and act with tennis balls all the time. Yeah. So when we do that, the only way for me that makes sense to make it feel authentic and believable is that we have, like Gene Kelly or like Dick Van Dyke, we have, or or, or uh, 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 all, all the actors who do this sort of thing, um, that we have, uh, we have Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins, that we have so much experience behind us with our physical scene partners that our imagination is so strong and so practiced that we can imagine not only the world around us, because like I'm in my booth right now and I have to imagine, you know, if I'm on the deck of a sailing ship in the game or something or in the animated cartoon, right? Yeah. I have to invi- and imagine not only that, but my scene partner as well, mm. right? Like your imagination has to be going over time to do all this. And, and I think the best way to, to be able to do that authentically is to have so much mileage behind you that you have that experience that you can rely on, you can lean on when the physical person isn't there. Wow. It it really kind of – I was thinking about this earlier today in preparation for kind of like talking with you and it's that sense of what are the – I'm all, just because of the way I think that now uh, with social media and the accessibility to becoming a performer, I think we're seeing a lot of people find success that aren't necessarily uh, – they don't come from the theater or they don't have a formal training background. And we see – I've been seeing like a little bit of an abandonment of like a – the classical uh, historical way of training for acting. You know, it's not necessarily somebody going to a conservatory or going to a class. It's people are finding their own personality and that leads them to becoming a successful performer. But I think what you're communicating is the mileage that you can get is being in the gym, whether that's in an acting class or uh, doing things practically. I mean, you know, if you're, especially if you're starting out as an actor, how much mileage can you have behind you um, if not through your training? Am, am I understanding the way you're, you're kind of interpreting that to be the the experience you can bring to each performance, especially if you're someone starting out? So you've got a couple of different things there that I want to clarify because I think there you're, you may be conflating a couple of things. One, you said that people are, are getting acting careers through social media. Are they? I, well, I mean, I don't know. Is that? I mean, I don't. It does not seem to me that social media is a necessary criteria for developing acting skill. That the two are connected in any way. I don't think necessarily that they are connected in that sense. I mean, you're definitely. I can think of a handful of examples. You know, the the 
uh, YouTuber influencer King Bach. You know, you see these people that are appearing in movies and they would be classified as actors from having a successful background as what might be a YouTuber or social media influencer. So I think if you are somebody who has no idea about the ins and outs of this industry and you pick up your cell phone and you go to TikTok and you see these people who are constantly showing up on your feed every single day and then they start appearing into in, in movies, you start thinking that that is a viable trajectory towards achieving uh, an outcome that would traditionally be experienced by going to acting school and so getting maybe, training. Maybe you can help me. I'm not aware of any YouTuber who showed up in a major uh, film or television show. I mean, you know, maybe maybe I'm a little limited. I, you know, I end up watching a lot of you know, Marvel, Disney, a lot of sci-fi and fantasy franchises because I'm trying to keep up with things or, yeah. you know, and, and, and whatnot. But I'm not seeing them. Sh- are there, what should I be aware of? Am I missing something? I mean, there's I- just as a sidebar, uh, Markiplier and Jacksepticeye are both well-known YouTubers who have crossed into the acting space. Markiplier, who's crossed in via his uh, heist with Markiplier and in space with Markiplier. He's the main lead in his own films. And Jack Septa guy has worked with Ryan Reynolds multiple times on multiple films. Yeah, I think like of Deadpool? Uh, not Deadpool, but it's what is it? Bad guys. It's it's a recent movie that Ryan Reynolds has done where Jack makes sort of a cameo in the movie as an actor. Yeah. I, it, now, Bad Guys is the animated film Bad Guys. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to double check which film I'm thinking. I'll give me one second. Yeah, look into that, Keith. I mean, I th- I can think of a ha- I mean, Ninja, who's one of the top streamers of all time. He was in that movie Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds. That comes to mind. I think of even like Jake Paul and Logan Paul. Jake Paul was a, you know, was on one of those Disney shows. I think, you know, there's just it, I've seen it happening from being someone who consumes social media. I see these people popping up more and more and more. And I think in those spaces of social media, people believe that to be a very um, capable way of, of pursuing a career as a performer nowadays, where I, I particularly see it as, you know, it may not be a very long career if that chooses, if that's, if, if that is the trajectory you choose to, to go down rather than, you know, <laughs> studying what you might be looking to do for the rest of your life. So here's the thing. Justin Timberlake has been successful as an actor. Yeah. I see him in major films. He's one the leads uh, the lead in the Trolls movie, which is better than it has any reason to be. The, the <laughs> Trolls movies are much better than they have any reason they should be. Sure. Um, right? Um, but, you know, I've seen him in other stuff. And, I mean, I, I see him in passing. These aren't the kind of films that I would necessarily put on my queue to watch. Uh-huh. But clearly, he's, he's succeeding and he's doing well. Now... Did he go to any sort of traditional acting school? Did he follow any traditional acting training program? I don't know. Probably not, right? But he's he's a talented musician in his own right. And musicianship and singing has an element of acting and, and connecting with an audience. It's not the same process as doing it with only text and not singing. Um, but I get that. And so maybe he was able to parlay that. But I bet you he had some help behind the scenes with some coaching and whatnot mm. to do that, right? It's not necessary, and, and you don't have to go to a bunch of acting training programs to become a good actor, but you have to care about acting. You have to give a damn about being believable to an audience, hmm. and you have to have a certain fascination with what it takes to be believable as a character. This is why 
even like really good stand-up comedians don't even don't necessarily make the best actors. For instance, I you know I'm a fan of Stephen Colbert. I like him. I think he's funny. He's intelligent. He's smart. He's quick. He's witty. I just heard him um, in like Peabody and and uh, Mr. Peabody sure. and Sherman. I was not really. I did not warm to his performance as the father. It it felt sticky. It it felt two dimensional. It felt sort of uh, caricaturish, you know. Um, whereas I don't feel that way about Justin Timberlake's performance as an animated character in Trolls, hmm. you know. And and so I I go the the problem with social media is that I'm not sure where the artistry lies. Does the artistry lie in being funny? Okay, that's a skill. Being funny is a skill. And maybe you can parlay that into acting. Does the artistry on social media involve creating music or something like that? Okay, you could parlay that somehow. I can see how that might work. If it's just being a provocateur and getting the likes, it is not clear to me how you can translate or transmute that mm. into acting. Um, but that doesn't matter if you have a fascination with acting. So the problem is, is I just don't think these two connect in a causal relationship in the way that people might think. Mm. Oh, if I become social media famous, ergo, I will then have an acting career. No, those two don't necessarily connect at all, you know, any more than, you know, because I have a YouTube channel about, oh, I don't know, cars that makes me a race car driver. It doesn't, <laughs> right? You actually have to learn how to race that car, no matter, you know, how good you may be at being a mechanic on it. Like, it's not the same skill set. So, yeah, that's a, that's to me, it's, 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 it's a seductive fallacy. I'll just get attention. If they, if people think acting is just about getting attention, they're in for a rude awakening. Because it doesn't get you hired. And I have worked on shows, on animated films, where the leads were, quote, YouTubers. People I didn't know. And they were the weakest performers in the film. And I have not heard them hired again. Mm. So, could you be a YouTuber and you could be a talented actor and figure out your acting skills? Absolutely. Because you are a YouTuber, you are therefore a talented actor? Nope. Don't see that causality at all. Yeah. I think that's... Uh... I, I think you <laughs> I think that's exactly the sentiment is that it doesn't create a sustainable uh, career. You might get that blip where you show up as a cameo. But is that what I I don't value that to be what is considered an acting career or to 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 qualify myself as an actor. So to go back to that, what you were kind of talking about in terms of having the experience to work in conditions that are not always favorable having seen partners what are things that kind of you would say will give you afford you the opportunity to, to show up on set and when you're just in a room by yourself and you don't have seen partners what are things you can be doing or what are things that are helpful for an actor to rely upon when it is just you by yourself uh or that creates that experience to uh, show up on game day and, and be able to play so to me, the most important thing is physicalizing mm. because it is the first thing that goes out the window as a voice actor because you are usually in a padded room somewhere with a microphone in basically a sensory deprivation tank. And you forget that you're on the top of Mount Everest or at the bottom of the ocean or on a spaceship going warp speed or swinging from vines in the jungle, whatever it might be. Um, and because what can happen is an actor by themselves will look at a script and they can practice it and they can practice it and they can practice it and they can get so in their head 
about what's the line reading. I mean, it's like that old Brady Bunch j- joke where the kids are like, my line is, hark, who goes there? How shall I say it? Hark, who goes there? Hark, who goes there? Hark, who goes there? Hark, who goes there? Like, I mean, it's like, you go nuts, right? You go, you, you will drive yourself insane. Yeah. But if you root it in the physicality of what's going on in the scene, that's going to be way more, it, it, it's going, you, you can trust your body more than you can trust your monkey mind, mm-hmm. right? The the sort of ego mind that's trying to like fix it all and did it like, it, it has to be in the body. Um, and, and so you have to imagine the world around you of the scene, like virtual reality with such veracity that it elicits a physical response from your body. And when that happens, when we have that physical response from the body, right, then we believe what you're going through because as social creatures, we have this like empathy circuit in our DNA Mm. so that when somebody else, you know, slams their thumb with a hammer, we go, right? Like we, we react because we're social empathetic creatures. Like it's part of our evolution. Yeah. Um, And so if you physically put yourself through what's happening in the scene and emotions are physical we can measure them they are biochemical reactions and brain states we can measure and so if you put your body physically in the state of the scene and allow your imagination to imagine these things physically happening to you the cool thing about being a human is that when we imagine things strong enough it our body reacts like it actually happens like we start sweating when we get nervous even though nothing has physically happened yet mm. you know and so that 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 notion of physicalizing is what makes it for me is a way to keep the performance grounded also it gives the animators wonderful things to work with because when you hear what you're going through uh, physically if i'm trying to go oh, i got to cut over this thing like oh what was that you know like they go oh i know exactly how to animate that yes. like they can hear your performance vocally and go oh i know exactly how that goes and the audience does that too the audience goes oh i know exactly what they're dealing with i can i can hear them what they're dealing with physically and there's no way to technically do that with line reading right I can I can say, oh my God, there's a tiger over there. Look out for that tiger. Watch out. And you're like, okay, clearly I'm not happy about the tiger. Yeah. But you're not going to pay me for that performance, <laughs> right? I, I hope so not. <laughs> yeah, right. You would hope not. Yeah. So instead, what happens is you have to imagine the tiger. You have to go, okay, tigers. What do they look like? Oh, they've, they've got that that skin that flows and the muscles that like move like water, and they're all lithe and they 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 motion and the 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 way their 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 joints are like like triple jointed. They can just move in all sorts of different ways. And when the light hits them, and it hits the tip of their fur and it makes them glow. And they they have that purr that low rumble that they do and there's that smell that's tiger smell that you have when you're in the tiger house at the, the, the zoo right so i've done all this to imagine it in my mind that there's a tiger over there they want to look oh god right yeah and now if you look literally the arms on my the, the hairs on my arm are sticking up yeah because i imagined the tiger strong enough that it affected my body that's what we'll pay you for yeah you know acting masochistic we only pay you when you sweat <laughs> right and so that when you see that clip of uh, Hugh Jackman doing the dubbing for, yeah. for, uh, for Wolverine for Logan. the Logan movies whatnot and he's and he's running and he's running in the booth like he's running on camera in in the thing and you think oh he doesn't have to do that he's just no he does mm-hmm. he does if you want it to sound believable it has to be in the body and so that for me is what hel- helps keep it grounded and not sort of in your head yeah 
Yeah. I mean, if somebody is unfamiliar with that type of level of performance like you're talking about with Hugh Jackman, we think we stand there and we just recite lines and that's where all the, you know, the camera's going to push in real close to us and it's going to be able to read every little thing. It's like if it's not in your body for a majority of the performances that are moving and inspiring that we see in animation and games and it's it's you need that level of commitment or and that's what separates the people I think who get booked and the people who don't. I'm I'm curious for you uh, to jump back away to the kind of the start of, of <laughs> the beginning of your life here. If we do a quick rewind, um, I'm curious what the first moment for you was. I know you grew up with your family around the opera. This is from my you know uh, excessive listening to your podcast and hearing about your life. So I I know you grew up around the, the opera, around the theater, around this type of lifestyle. But what was the moment for you in your life where being surrounded by art and this type of lifestyle translated to you? in saying, I want to do this as a career. Do you remember the moment where that happened for you and said, I'm going to make this my life as well, rather than it just being something that I've always been exposed to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you say my, my family was involved in the theater. I want people to understand, both my parents were lawyers <laughs> and my grandfather as well. So it's not like I came from a family of performers. Far from it. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. They, yeah. Were, they were just this normal, standard people, I guess, living a sort of middle class lifestyle, doing their thing. Yeah. You know, there was, but, but the thing was that my grandfather had become fascinated with the opera because he had given money uh, early in his career. He had, he, had, he had been successful as a lawyer pretty early in his career, which was impressive because I think he'd done this during the 30s, like during the Depression. And so he had given – someone asked him for money to help uh, fund, to support a composer. And the composer was putting their composition, the musical composition, into a competition. And so he, he said, sure. He gave some money to the composer. Composer wrote this music. Music won an award. My f- grandfather, being a patron of the arts, it so tickled him that he his financial support for this artist had garnered this award that he just got addicted to it and so that's why my 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 family got involved with the opera as the patron <laughs> so you used to be able to walk into the lyric opera of chicago and and in the main uh, lobby area there are these stairs that go up to the to the second floor of the balcony and whatnot and there used to be the the supporters on the wall and there used to only be five names up there and one of them was my grandfather's Right now, there's like corporations and all this kind of stuff. Of course, but you know that that was that was the thing. So like we, my all, my grandfather had all the cast parties at his house uh-huh. because he was the patron and he loved all these op- opera singers and he loved you know show, giving them showing them a good time and, and everything. And so as a kid, they always wanted me to be in the opera and I didn't want to do it because mm-hmm. it was scary, man. I don't know if you've been around opera singers; their voices are so big and so loud. It's a power. That me as, as a quiet little introverted kid, they scared the hell out of me. I didn't want to any get, and I was totally shy. I didn't want to do this at all. But the thing that flipped my tumblers was when they finally convinced me to try it. They said they said things like, "Oh, when you're on stage, all the lights will be in your eyes, so you won't even see the audience. So you won't even." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." Uh-huh. So I, I swallowed that, you know, nonsense. But they got me in the opera house, and that's what did it. Once they got me, because there's a there's a stage door. <laughs> at the Civic Opera Theater in Chicago. And once we got in that stage door, what happens is you enter a city. The, the, the back of an opera house is so massive 
that it literally feels like you're in a city, you're, like it's humming. Mm-hmm. And so people, I'd watch these people come off the street. They were actors, singers in the opera. They would get on an elevator because you had to get on the elevator to get to all the different floors in the theater. And they would come down the elevator and they would look like Henry VIII. And I thought, that's cool, right? That's cool that we're creating this illusion. And so I got fascinated with the creation of this illusion to the people in the audience. Because when I would get on stage, when they finally, all I had to do to be in, in the opera was I just had to stand there and not burn the theater down. So I was skinny enough to fit in the costumes, and I didn't burn the theater down, although I almost did once. But, you know, that, that's good enough. And so, but when I was on stage, and this was all happening... I could see on the back of the set all the notes that the stagehands had written about, okay, this piece goes here, and this flat's going to fly out here on this scene. And I was like, oh, that's cool. So I got to see behind to see how the puppetry show was working. That was when the fascination kicked in. And I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. Uh, creating this for the audience is awesome. I like this part of it. So yeah. let me let me collaborate on this notion of creating the illusion for other people. That's what's fascinating to me. Well, you definitely have a curiosity about a lot of things, and it seems like when these things are apparent to you, it's like, okay, that's going to stick out and last with you. Jump to, I guess, when you're in high school and you're preparing to go to, you went to Williamstown, am I correct, first, and then MFA in Columbia? Am I getting that correct? So uh, I went uh, high school in Chicago. Uh Then I went to uh, undergraduate college at Williams College. Williams, yes. And then... Uh, the I graduated the day I graduated Williams College. I checked into the Williamstown Theater Festival, which is a famous yes. summer theater festival. It's so funny. It's like senior. I graduated at the top of the world, and that afternoon I was at the bottom of the heap when it came to the theater <laughs> festival because I was just a greenhorn. It was a very interesting experience. But so then I spent I spent that summer and a couple of other summers at the Williamstown Theater Festival in different roles because it was a really good uh, entry point into the New York theater scene because so many people from the New York theater scene would come up to Williamstown, Massachusetts for the Williams. Williamstown Theater Festival in the summer and then go back down. Mm-hmm. So then, so I had four years of college, summer of Williamstown's Theater Festival, and then I started at Columbia Grad School that fall. Um, and while I was at grad school, I went back to the Williamstown Theater Festival a, a couple of times. So prior to even going to Williams College, did, were you majoring in theater and drama at that point? Well, I, I mean, our high school didn't have majors. I don't know if yours did. But, um, you know, I, in high school, yes, I was, in, I was involved in the theater. So what happened was, as a kid, I was involved in the opera through middle school, which would be 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Yeah. And by the time I hit freshman year of high school, ninth grade, I was too old to be a kid at the opera. Yeah. But I was too young to, like, be a singer in the chorus. And my voice wasn't there yet anyway. So that's when I first auditioned for a play uh, my freshman year of high school. And luckily, I got in. It was a production of Midsummer Night's Dream. And so I got in that play. And then from that point on, I auditioned and was in every play in high school. We Our high school did like a play each semester. So we basically did two plays a year. One of them was usually a musical. Yeah. Um, and then uh, so I, I did that all through high school and also did like summer training, theater training programs while I was in high school, including the Cherubs program at Northwestern University, which is pretty famous among theater people. Sure. Um, and, then, and then off to college where I majored in theater and minored in computer science. Yes. And so, and you were also, in, were you interested in like technology? I'm, I'm presuming so. And, and, you know, all these other things you were a fan of Tolkien and myth, was mythology really present to you at that point in your life prior to college? Were you obsessed with fantasy and stories and reading? Did that become an obsession for you at that point early in your life? 
Um, well, yeah, two things there. One, I was a computer nerd before I became a theater geek. Mm. So I was fortunate enough to get my hands on a Macintosh computer back in 1985, which was when the first the first Macs came out in 1984, the famous 1984 ad that they put up. Oh, yeah. Women throwing the anvil through the screen. Um, so uh, I actually got my hands on a Macintosh in 1985 and was dealing with programming. And I was programming on like 16 kilobit Sinclair uh, computers in basic and like it was ridiculous. Um, so I was I was into that before I got into the theater. And then I really liked the theater. And that, that was why as I was going through college and whatnot, I was sort of doing both things. Sure. I was... I was Computer programming mostly for sound design because I was really into sound design and computers at that point in the early 90s were just getting fast enough to do professional quality audio. But in terms of my, my the um, content or, or that I was consuming when I was young, um, I always had a... Uh, uh, a penchant fascination with fantasy and science fiction storytelling. I was fortunate that my mother read me the Hobbit when I was younger. So when people ask me, you know, you know, what's your, what's your religious background? I'm like middle earth. Like, <laughs> that's, uh, I was raised on middle earth. I don't know what to tell you. Um, and so uh, the, the, I, I had a certain fascination with that storytelling and I loved me my sci-fi, you know, Star Trek. And back then when I was growing up, anime was just starting to come over. So I was watching Speed Racer, Star Blazers, Battle of the Planets, Battle of the Planets, Science Ninja Team Gachamon. Oh my God. I love me some Science Ninja Team Gachamon. Um, uh, so Battle of the Planets. Planets, but then what really took the cake was Voltron, which was pretty cool. Sure. Robotech. Robotech was the pinnacle. When Robotech showed up, it was like suddenly someone had handed me the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like, oh my God, look at Robotech. Um, so that was that was sort of the the content that I was uh, consuming, uh, along with you know God loved the eighties and fantasy films. Yeah. I mean, so many you know Conan the Barbarian and Labyrinth and animated stuff like The Last Unicorn and Rankin Bass's Hobbit and even Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, which I know you know has problems, but it has I have a soft spot in my you heart sure? for Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. Um, so yeah, I was I was into this content. I didn't occur to me to think about it mythologically. Until I was in graduate school. Okay. So when I was in graduate acting school, what happened is I had a real artistic crisis of sorts. My acting wasn't any good. My personal relationships weren't hot. I had no no dating life to speak of. Things were not going well. <laughs> um, and this is a common thing that can happen to people in graduate school because you're exhausted and, and they're pushing you sort of to the extreme yeah. to sort of break you down and build you back up. Well, I was there. And in the midst of this crisis, I discovered two things. One, I rediscovered my love of anime. Because at the time, this is the late 90s, 94 to 97, I'm in New York City, and the Sci-Fi Channel had just started airing something called Saturday Morning Anime. And instead of Saturday Morning Cartoons, they would show classic anime like Record of Lotus War, Lensman, Robot Carnival, things like that. And... Um, and so I, I was, I was re-exposed to anime that I had been out of touch with all through college. And I found Joseph Campbell's work on comparative mythology, specifically the PBS series, The Power of Myth, mm -hmm. which is, which was on Netflix for a while. I don't think it is anymore, unfortunately. I wish. But it's a, yeah, it's a famous PBS series. You can get it, either streaming or DVD. Yeah. It's, it's out there. Um, so, uh, and at that time it was like airing live on New York television. Like they were doing a, a re rerun of it on PBS. Campbell, Joseph Campbell's scholarship on mythology became a Rosetta Stone. He became my like decoder ring for understanding s consciously 
why I was so subconsciously attracted to the storytelling. He was able to help me put into words why I was so fascinated with the storytelling. Because I didn't know. As an actor, I was like, what do I, want? What do I care about? What do I want to do? You know? And it was that, that was when I discovered, oh, I get it. My fascination is metaphysical archetypal hero journey storytelling, which is fairy tales and legends and mythology. It is not death of a salesman. Right. The sort of gritty, realistic, naturalistic, one might even say like Chekhovian. Yeah. Like Ch- Chekhov's plays, whether it's Uncle Vanya or Three Sisters Bear, yeah. or uh, or Seagull. It's all about like the human condition and, and the tragedy behind. And that was not my thing. Also, I was not vaudeville. Right. I'm not I'm not your Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, Roadrunner and Coyote, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. That stuff's great. I have such appreciation for it, but that's not near and dear to my heart. Sure. I, I love it, but it's not it's not it doesn't come out of me. Yeah. I'm not a vaudevillian by nature, <laughs> but Bilbo Baggins, Luke Skywalker, you know, like these these sort of archetypal hero journeys, that was sort of my fascination. So that's, you know, people would say, why do you love animation? So it like t- took 20 years for me to be able to articulate yeah. exactly why <laughs> I'm more fascinated by animation than I am necessarily by, say, live action filmmaking. And what is it about these characters or specifically these stories where it's a, a, a hero's journey where it's, you know, somebody overcoming the odds? And I mean, Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey is a a really wonderful resource for anybody who is involved in any process, part of the storytelling process. What is it about these uh, metaphysical, mythological stories for you that is hitting a chord? Like, why is it resonating in a different way for you than something like Death of a Salesman? So, if you look at a story like Death of a Salesman, that is the story of one person dying and how one person deals with death. Mm -hmm. But if you look at characters in, say, Lord of the Rings that die, that's not how that character deals with death. That's how we as humans approach death. You've gone from simply the psychological to the metaphysical, right? So there's... there's, um, I think it Campbell talks about uh I think it's James Joyce who talks about what is the yes yes so um in thinking about so that a pithy way to say this is fiction are stories that look like they're real but we know they're not true okay but fantasy are stories that we know are fantastical but contain truth in them mm. they have a seed of an essential or universal or metaphysical truth that is applicable beyond the phenomenon of the story itself. You ta- That's why people look at Lord of the Rings and say, it's about this, it's about that. It's, yes, because it's a metaphor. You can take that metaphor and you can apply it in multiple areas and multiple people can apply it in multiple areas. That's not allegory. Yeah. Allegory is what C.S. Lewis was doing with Narnia, where Aslan is Jesus, full stop. And you can't say anything else. Yeah, yeah. And Tolkien didn't appreciate that. He's like, I think that's not a wise idea. <laughs> I find that fascistic, right? Um, but so that's, that's what it is, is that it's, it's metaphorical. And specifically that, it is metaphorical of what is possible in human existence. So that it's not just... Oh, that person, something sad happened to them. That's pathetic. 
right? Pathos, feeling pity for someone, pathos, saying, oh my God, that's pathetic, is saying, um, it is, it, James Joyce describes it as whatever is grave and constant in human suffering and unites it with the human sufferer. Right. So you have something you hurt yourself. You bang your thumb with a hammer. Right. And you feel hurt and I feel hurt because I've united with you as a human sufferer. Okay, And so if someone is killed by a gunshot. Right. We might say that the instrumental cause is the bullet and the human cause is the is the person who's who's killing the the, the murderer. Yeah. But if the character says, I would rather choose death I would rather choose physical death rather than spiritual death. If they say, I know I am tempting death by what I am doing, but what I am doing is so important, I want to do it anyway. Now, that becomes tragedy, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Where Oedipus or Hamlet or any of these characters acknowledges and accepts the bargain and says, I accept this bargain that I will go forward with this. And James Joyce would say, that is the pity. That's the, the feeling of terror. And terror is the feeling that arrests the mind mm -hmm. whenever is in the presence of whatever is grave and constant in human suffering and unites it with the secret cause. And what is the secret cause of that suffering? It's within the person themselves. <laughs> they willingly said, I am doing this. Yeah. Damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Now, if they die in the attempt, we call them a tragic hero. Yeah. Right? Hamlet dies. But if they succeed and destroy the Death Star... Then they are a mythological hero. And we go, ah, okay, now they are master of two worlds. They've been able to come back and, and, and do both. They yeah. can work on both things. So for me, it's that it's, it's not just the psychological, but the metaphysical, because that is pedagogical. It, it, it teaches me how to go through life. It says, this is how to go through life. This is not just how this person dies. This is how we approach death. <sighs> this is how we should think about it. This, oh, this is how we approach love. This is how we approach loss. This is how we approach success. Like these, these are all grand metaphors that are applicable to multiple people and not just the idiosyncratic thing of what's going on. Mm. You know, when Seinfeld goes through whatever he's going in his story, <laughs> I think, oh, well, that's funny for Seinfeld. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily help me. But when Bilbo Baggins is in, for those who are familiar with The Hobbit, he at some point they have to go try to deal with this dragon who's taken all the dwarves' gold and killed a bunch of the dwarves. And the dwarves are so cowardly that they send Bilbo alone into the dragon's cave to try to deal with him and, I don't know, carry out the entire golden horde on his back. Like It's not clear what Bilbo's supposed to do with this. Yeah. And Bilbo is feeling fear, real fear, because there's a dragon down there. He can feel the heat from it. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the climax of The Hobbit is in that moment when Bilbo, who has not even seen the dragon yet, has to battle his own fear. Yeah. And it's wonderful. They did it really well in the Rankin-Bass animated film. They did it terribly in the live action. But in the Rankin-Bass animated film, he says, here is where you fight your real battle, Mr. Bilbo Baggins. Mm -hmm. Right? Do you feel the dragon's heat? A few more steps and you shall see the old worm at last. You could still turn back, you know. But to go on, to take those steps, that would be the greatest of all moments, right? Here's where you fight your real battle, Mr. Bilbo Baggins. Do you go back? No. And so what happens is Tolkien has taken the idea of overcoming anyone's fear 
you know, facts, you know, that, that what is it? Uh, what, what is it? Um, a feeling like absent of facts. Like you, you, you don't even have the fact. He can't even see the dragon yet. He's overcoming his own existential fear. Yeah. And that's the heroic moment to say, I will go forward anyway. And if he had been eaten by the dragon, he'd be a tragic hero. <laughs> but he wasn't, right? He made it. But there is another tragic hero in the story, which I'm not going to spoil, but there is another tragic hero in the story who, who that's what happens. Absolutely. You know, doesn't get eaten by the dragon, but that's, you know, they, they, they lose their life because of yep. this. So that, that notion as a child and even as an adult, I can look to this wisdom and say, ah, you know, the labyrinth is, fuller, is, is fully known, right? It has been fully explored and I need only follow the thread of the hero path to guide me through these stages of my life. And I'm here to tell you now as an older person, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like, you know, there, and there's different stories that appeal to me on different levels now because of that. And so, you know, a lot of the stories that I was really into when I was younger were all sort of coming of age stories and, you know, proving yourself. Yeah. And now it's like, okay, now what? Right. Like, so you're king. Not that I'm king, but let's say you've reached some place where you're like, OK, now I'm, I'm in this place. What do I do next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, what is what, why, what, what's the mean? You know, and so it's all about finding meaning. Mm. It's all about how does one find that metaphysical meaning, which I find can help me guide me through my life. That's what I find in fairy tales, legends and mythological storytelling. Wow. Oh, my gosh. It's so much for me to process there, and it makes me kind of wonder for you, what is it now? I mean, it sounds like it is the journey, but I, I'm curious. Are you able to define now where you are at your career, kind of what is what is the North Star for you at this point? Is there something that – so here's a good example. For me, I found a lot of what I had been working towards especially professionally, you know, what I had aspired to be in my career was was on the foundations of the things that I had surrounded myself with as a child. I was obsessed with video games, I was obsessed with similar things, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, all these things, and I wanted to have that similar hero's journey. And that has informed what I am trying to still achieve to this day. Someone in your position who has had a tremendous success in their career, whether you want to admit that or not, you have had a tremendous success in your career. Do you feel that a lot of what you are still, um, you know, professionally working towards is still defined by those childhood like parameters you had set up? Or is there a different North Star at this point, having seen like I am here at the top of this mountain? Now what? When you ha when you ask yourself that question is it still the the things that you had valued and and sought after as a kid, you know, the, the the hero's journey of Bilbo and all those things, or is it now something completely different, having been where you are and succeeded in the ways that you've had? So I think the metaphor of having reached the summit of the mountain, or being king, or being the success. I think is not the best metaphor <laughs> um, because it implies then that like, well, what happens when you're not the top of the heap? Are you all washed up? Like if you're not the championship heavyweight boxer, is your life over? You got, you got the Super Bowl ring and then what? And I don't, and I don't think that's a, I, I, I think that's not a healthy metaphor to think about it. Um, Dante talked about, I think it's in La Vita Nuovo, um, where he talks about, the stages of one's life and that he breaks it up into like four different stages. Um, and the first stage is sort of, uh, sort of youth from zero to about, I think he puts it about 20, 
um, where you're just, you're learning, you're doing your damnedest to learn everything you can and, and get better at things. And you're the apprentice basically. And then from about 20 to 35, cause he puts 35 as the midpoint of life. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I know, right. Uh, okay. Uh, there's reasons for that though. It's because his 35th year lined up with the turn of the century, which is why he wrote the Inferno. That's when he did on the 35th, because he was lining up his life with the turn of the century, with the world and the universe. And, you know, and I guess life expectancy th- too. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And Dante had a big ego, yeah. so that's okay. Um, but so, but I, I think it's, I know his midpoint was 35. And so that, that, that earlier, that, that second stage is about being the journeyman, sort of being the master and being effective at things. Uh-huh. And then from 35 to like 50, I think it is, um, that's the sort of senatorial age where you need to be sharing your wisdom publicly hmm. with the people who are coming up behind you because you have experience of what's going on. And then from you know 50 out... It's sort of your professor emeritus. <laughs> like you, you get to you get to sort of chill and enjoy the fruits of your labors from there, and and have this sort of you know uh, sort of peaceful out, and 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 he sees it more as like the sun going through the sky, huh. right? Like where where the sun is in the sky, and and just because the sun's at the top of its zenith doesn't mean it's like that's the best position for the sun to be sure right like yeah. that's like that's the championship moment no not necessarily because there are plenty of people who didn't have quote wild success until much later in life i mean people laughed at tolkien for most of his life <sighs> you know he didn't become a huge success until very late in his life same with somebody like colonel sanders <laughs> like the guy who made fried, Kentucky chicken. fried chicken right <laughs> Right. He didn't figure this out until he was like 66 years old. Yeah, yeah. Right? So the the the, the idea that uh, attaching yourself to like, I've got the brass ring and that's what my life is about, I think is dangerous. Yeah. Because it doesn't give you much afterwards. Because I've heard the woman who wrote the book Eat, Pray, Love. Sure. She was like, I am terrified that I will always be known as the woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love and nothing else. Yeah. And I did it quite early in my career. What am I supposed to do now, right? Like, and and if you if you attach your worth to that brass ring, oh, that's not going to lead to a happier, meaningful life, in my opinion. Absolutely, I think maybe uh, the wrong thing for me to have focused on, or a bad way of communicating what I was trying to, rather than the oh, reaching the right. top of the mountain, more so, is what is the thing that is. You know, your nucleus, is it still the same, your driving force to continue to achieve or that is still inspiring you to to wake up and look at your auditions or to go to your session? Is it the same thing um, or has it changed and evolved or redeveloped Is it, or is it something completely different? I think um, some people are, are, you know, whether it's you, you go through a life change, you lose somebody, you have kids, those things oftentimes influence what you care about most in life. And I'm wondering if if it's still the same at its core, the things that you were inspired by as a as a kid, or if it has evolved to something else. Is there is there what is, you know, what is your North Star in that regard rather than um <laughs> I I have all the riches, now I can sit back and feast. You know? <laughs> I think I think there's usually two things that motivate um fascination and pain Mm. so like i remember watching a a biography of eddie izzard fabulous stand-up comic right sure 
and you and and after watching his biography documentary, which has been a while now since I've seen it, I came away with the impression that, wow, he's really doing a lot of this because of his mother. Like he has he has pain because of his mother, um, and 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 missing her. And wanting to, you know, show her what he can do. And, and I mean, it's, it, his mother sounded like she was a perfectly wonderful woman. Huh. Um, you know, it's, it's not like she was uh, abusive or anything. Yeah. But it sounded like he, he wanted to, to show his worth to his mother in some way. And so it feels like so much of what he's doing is for his mother. Um, I could just totally me being armchair psychologist. But I think it's absolutely true that people often are motivated to pursue what they are, if, especially if they're like super passionate about yeah. it, either because of massive fascination or massive pain, mm. some, sort of, some sort of hurt, right? And so both were certainly in play when I was young. Um, and so I think what happens is as I've gotten older, the pain... The, the painful things that might have motivated me to do this, um, the need to find uh, approval for me as me. I was raised in a very competitive environment where one's ability to succeed either academically or performance in any sort of performance measured way, um, which is usually sort of intellectual analytical stuff, um, your grades were your value as a human uh, being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the idea of being valued just for me that me as myself, separate from what I could accomplish, is valuable, uh. right? That was the power of acting, that my emotions, separate from what they could accomplish for me, were valuable, mm. right? And and also, being really nervous about around girls, <laughs> right? Like, I, didn't know how to, I, I, I didn't know how to talk to girls, right? I didn't, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. I, you know? I'm with you. And so the idea, that I, the idea that I could be in these positions where I could role play all these different characters and I could pl explore different parts of my psyche and I could interact with people and figure out what my emotional relationships to them were. I mean, yes, primarily I was, you know, sweet on girls. But even with guys, this notion of, well, what is my friendship with men about? Yeah. What does it mean to be friends with men, especially in a, in a culture that often pits us against each other in, in ways that I don't think are healthy at all? Um, so the, that sort of exploration of the, of the wounds that we all have of our youth and also the real desire to be in things, mm. you know, to want to be in the next animated Hobbit movie or the next Star Wars or whatever that is, you know, that's usually from a... a I could call it pain, but it also could just be this like hungry place. Hmm. You know, you just you're just hungry to do this thing. You know, and so that was certainly there. As I've gotten older, and I've gotten to play so many different characters, so many different characters of types that I really wanted to play. Yeah, those hungers are not there as much anymore. What is left is the fascination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just as fascinated now with say Star Wars. As I was back then, which means that I can still put on Empire Strikes Back and have Yoda say, you know, you know, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. And it just brings tears to my eyes. Yeah. Like I can't like, oh, you know, and so and so that that fascination is still there. The fact that I can quote Rankin Bass Hobbit off the top of my head. <laughs> come on. You know, that's not about hunger. That's not about pain. That's about fascination. Yeah. That's that's about this thing that I love. And so what happens now is there's so less ego involved. Right. There's there's just like, what can I bring? Yeah. Do you like me? 
is this cool? This is what I got. This is what I can contribute to this. Is it, you want something different? I'll try it. And may, okay, maybe I can't give you what you want. You need somebody else. They're going to do it better. Great. Have hire them. They're going to be great. That's going to be awesome. And so there's, there's a, there's like a, a seasoning. You're sort of, you've marinated for so long that you're like, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. And it has, it has a certain gravitas now because it's based, it's it, the, the fascination has stayed and all of the neuroses have relaxed a little bit just a little bit it sounds it sounds <laughs> right? even more exciting to when you are able to remove that ego element and you have as you've said seasoned yourself in this way of saying like okay I, this is what i'm about this is what i have to offer and i'm ready to play that just seems even more rewarding to be able to explore that fascination with whether it's the character or the story whatever it is you get to dive into when you've removed this part of you that are like is like okay if i get this i'm gonna make this much money i'm gonna it's gonna lead to this amount of opportunity when you're able to like fully uh or as full as i guess you can truthfully say about yourself remove that part of what your desires are from you know the ego it really feels like that's a a really beautiful place to be as a performer and have you been able to like make or or was there a point where you made a conscious notice of that and being like oh i don't care about that in this way anymore and i'm just like i feel uninhibited in myself and my body is more free than it used to be was there a moment where that kind of clicked for you and you 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 felt that release in your life well that assumes that i've had that release and that i've retained (laughs) that release at all times you're describing me like the buddha and like that you know in my in my moments of inspiration uh, and and relaxation, it feels like that. Sure. And then there are moments when I just feel like crap, <laughs> you know. And we and we can't help but sometimes compare ourselves to others. But luckily, those m- moments of anxiousness or doubt or self criticism don't come as often. Yeah. And I think what really what was really amazing to me is when I finally got to work on Scooby Doo, <laughs> and I got I got to do this uh, episode of Scooby Doo. And it's a wonderful one because Harlan Ellison is in it. I don't know if you know, yeah. if you know Harlan yeah, Ellison. Yeah. Famous sci-fi writer, wrote famous Star Trek episodes and whatnot. And the whole episode, is the premise is that Harlan Ellison comes to lecture at a college. And this kid asks him questions about the professor Hatecraft, who teaches at the college, which is obviously an homage to H.P. Lovecraft. Sure. And, of course, this student really likes his professor Hatecraft. And Harlan Ellison thinks that Hatecraft is a hack and thinks he's terrible. And so the student dresses up as a monster and terrorizes Ellison. And then he gets unmasked and he says, I would have done it, too, if it weren't for you meddling kids. Uh-huh. And so I got to play that kid. I got to play that oh, kid who got to. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And I was wondering, who are they going to get to play Harlan Ellison? Harlan Ellison showed up at the studio. Wow. <laughs> I lost my mind. Yeah. And so I'm sitting next to Harlan Ellison as we're recording this. And uh, so all the guest stars are on one side of the booth. On the other side of the booth is the Scooby Gang. Yeah. Which includes Frank, Frank Welker. Welker. <laughs> oh. So there's Frank Welker over there playing Fred. Yeah. And along with Craig Delisle and Matthew Lillard and like all these great people and everyone is on the top of their game. Um, Carlos Elzaraki was with me. I mean, these are top of their game people, yeah. right? But Frank Welker, man, he sits there like the Buddha. Yeah. He he is just completely unperturbed. He's just like, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And then he did the creature voice. I didn't do the creature voice. He did the, uh, Frank, we need the creature voice. He's like, okay. And it was like some ice creature, I think, or something. He went... Yeah. 
And I was like, oh, you bastard, you're so brilliant. The Nazgul. <laughs> so like, right? Like, I'm like, oh my God, that's like great. Like, I would have gone like, like I would have done like some way too much. Yeah. And he just got right up on the mic and did that. And I was like, oh, you are a genius. You are the Buddha, right? Mm. And after we were done, he was like, yep, going to go play some golf. <laughs> like, because that's what he does. Yes, yes, yes. Right? And, and he was so kind. He came up to me. He's like, good work, kid. Ah. I was like, thank you, Frank. Um, but, you know, like that, that's... I, I, I looked at that and went, okay, how do you get more accomplished than Frank Welker? Sure. He's literally in more films than any other actor on the planet, except maybe Bollywood. I mean, there may be some Bollywood person I'm unaware uh-huh. of. But in terms of a, like Hollywood films, he's in more films than any other actor on the planet. And he's he's tr- he walks around like the Buddha. That's what I aspire to. Do I reach it all the time? Hell no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But that's that's when I went, oh, yeah, see, there you go. Once once you've done that, then it's all about the the groove now. It's like it's like listening to Paul McCartney talk about playing music. Sure. He was a Beatle, goddammit. You know, like he's he's just what can you play now? What can we do now that could be who who's interesting to play with now? Yeah. Sure, let's do it. Gosh, frankly, uh, I mean when you talk about Frank Welker like that, it's it's I know this is uh I, I'm not saying this to make you feel old, so don't take it this way. But it is a very <laughs> similar experience for someone like me sitting here and having worked with you on like Kaito files. And I expressed this to you before. It's, you know, I mean, I look up to people like Frank and Rob Paulson and all these people as well. And obviously I have a huge appreciation for this craft and the people who are doing this at the, <laughs> the top of the their game. And, and I, I have definitely viewed you as one of those people and having consumed the media that you are working in. In addition to being um, a fan of, of you as an actor, you know, I've there's so many titles that I've just grown up playing with that you've been in and then to work alongside you and, and to, you know, quite literally doing Kaito files and hearing this performance and then having that moment of being out of body and saying, oh, gosh, I'm working with this person who I've had as a uh, uh, an invisible teacher to me in my life. Uh, through your podcast was was that similar kind of experience for me in a very different way. And, and gosh, am I envious of being able to be in a room with a full cast of people and guest stars like, please come back to that time sometime soon, please. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I know it's I, I don't say this to, to make you feel that way, but I definitely see you as one of those people and your work speaks speaks for itself in that regard. And I'm sure if we asked Frank Welker, he'd probably tell you the same thing you just said to me, where uh, tell us the same thing where he's like, yeah, you know, sometimes maybe I am feeling self-conscious or things like that. Maybe that is something that never escapes us as uh, human beings and, uh, you know, <laughs> these type of emotional creatures that we are. I, 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 I'm I, curious about some of your, your roles, and I want to talk about uh, what you put into your performances. Even he- sitting here and listening to you talk, you have such a way with words, and I'm sure that comes from your curiosity and love of literature and all these things. And one thing that I've seen come up within these roles, you know, you look at someone like Alucard, you look at even like uh, Itachi and, you know, all these characters that have a, a similar sophistication that you have with language and the way that they speak and the, the presence that they bring. Um, <laughs> even though some of your characters can also be terrifying and unhinged and, and, and violent. I'm wondering where does that uh, marriage of sophistication and whatever else the character might have? I just think of Olicard at the top of my head. You know, this character that is it almost speaks like poetry sometimes, but also has such nuance and great, 
great rage and, and violence in there. Where does that come from for you to be able to like teeter that seesaw so elegantly when you're, when, when you're doing it? And I think just, I mean, if anybody hasn't seen Helsing and, and uh, your performance in Holocard, it is, it is one of my favorite of all time. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. <laughs> um, I think it probably comes from Shakespeare. Huh. Um, that the notion that sophistication and huge passion might be on opposite ends of a spectrum is a fallacy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because all you have to do is look at Henry V and, you know, the way that Henry V talks to the people during battle. I mean, when he's, you know, I was not angry ere I came to France, you know, like there's a there's a rage there, you know, your naked infants spit it on pikes. I mean, literally, when he goes up and says, uh, you know, this is the latest parley we will admit. He's at Harfleur in France and he's his army's exhausted and the, the city has still not fallen. Mm-hmm. And he basically stands up and gives this just ripping vicious, brutal speech about what he's going to do to everyone in that town if they don't surrender. And it inspires them to surrender. And in the in the, the uh, Kenneth Branagh movie version of it, it's great because he gets done with the speech and he's like, oh God, he's, he's lost it, <laughs> right? But this, this notion that rage is only Hulk smash, when... If you can marry rage with iambic pentameter, you are a satellite heat ray laser that can destroy planets. I mean, just think about the Death Star. What really powers it is a massive kyber crystal. That is the same elegance that you find in a lightsaber, right? And so for me, there was no no separation, Mm. you know? Um, and so do I have a penchant for language? Yes. That was because I was raised on Tolkien. And also my grandfather was like that. <laughs> I have, when I was in fifth grade, we had to do um, family history reports. And I was tech forward as a fifth grader. And so I had my little cassette recorder, my little tape recorder. <laughs> and I recorded the interviews. You know, didn't just take notes, but I recorded them. So I still have this recording. Wow. From... 1977 or something like late seventies of me talking to my grandfather and him reciting his history, his personal biography to me. And it's hilarious because the tape starts and this little Crispin voice goes, um, yeah, whatever you're doing, that sounded great. And then this voice comes in and goes, well, I think what you want to ask me, Crispin is da 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 da. He literally teaches me how to interview him. It's unbelievable. Wow. Right. So, I, I, yes, I, I, I come by this very honestly, but it also comes with a fascination of language that I got from Tolkien yeah. because I, I so loved what was happening in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And so, um, to me, it's not teetering. It's, it's, the, it's the fanciest expression. Yeah. It, is, it is the most mature, uh, um, sort of refined expression of these, of these feelings. Because I can go Hulk smash too. I mean, you know, there there are characters that I play that are not, shall we say, refined. Mm-hmm. Um, Togusa in Ghost in the Shell, he's not a refined dude, right? He's not dumb. No, no, he's he's clever. He's smart, but he's a cop. Yeah, 
you know, and he doesn't like technology. You know, that's why he carries a revolver and not an automatic pistol, because he doesn't trust technology that much. You know, um, Shizuo in Durarara, who is this bartender who runs around ripping vending machines out of the ground and throwing them at people. Shizuo is pretty monosyllabic. <laughs> you know, he's not a, he's Hulk smash, yeah. you know. And so I sure I can play those characters, too. But to to be able to do something on the level, the, the difference between Hulk smash is that when Hulk smashes, he's smashing other people and other things. When a character in a Greek tragedy says Hulk smash, they are standing on the stage at Epidaurus in Greece in this natural amphitheater. And on the top of the ring of the theater around them are the heads of the gods. (laughs) And that is who you are addressing now, you know, that you are going to destroy the Minotaur or whatever you're going to do, or you're going to take down Troy, you know. Oh, splendor of sunburst breaking forth this day, whereon I lay my hands once more on Helen, my wife! Right, like this is Menelaus screaming to the gods. Mm. That's a level of metaphysical connection that you'd get out of military duty in Greece if you had to put on a play, right? So if you could play Menelaus, if you could play Achilles and, and, and talk to the gods in that way with that kind of fury, then... Yeah, that's that's where it all starts, right? I mean, m- most of most of Western theater is rooted in our notions of of Greek comedy and tragedy, and even in the East, when you do deal with Bharatanatyam dance theater and you know to the gods and Japanese no theater has the met- metaphysical stuff going on, and you know, so it's it, it that's where it starts. I remember someone, uh, a, a theater teacher of mine, saying that classical theater is addressed to the gods. Modern theater is addressed to other people, to the audience, right? So you go from sort of Greek to Chekhov, yeah. which is addressed to other people. And then Beckett, it's like you're talking to yourself. Right? <laughs> so you're waiting for Godot. It's like the characters are just sort of talking to themselves inside their own heads, you know? Um, so. I got to see Waiting for Godot with uh, Serena McKellen and Patrick Stewart when I was in the city. And that was a very ah. uh, unique and beautiful experience to see. But, you're, it's, you know, even still two characters very much in a completely different way than seeing Oedipus or, uh, you know, any Shakespeare play, which I had the uh, honor and privilege of seeing at the the New York um, Central Park. God, the name is ex- uh, the outside theater, the uh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare in the Park. Park. The, yeah. yeah the, the theater I'm, is escaping me I right now. I don't remember the name of the theater. But um, yeah, yeah, it's a very unique experience. And I think to be an actor and, and have the ability to go and see something like that can change your life. And we talked about on your show when I saw things like Jerusalem and things like that. It's just, it, it, it brought performance and theater and uh, expression to me in such a completely different way. And what you're saying about like, you know, addressing gods and, and, and doing things like that. It's, it, you're right. It's not a, a seesaw. It's, it's the, it's this, it is a complete marriage, and that is what I think is inspiring about the performances that move us and aren't black and white or one-dimensional. Or uh, Those are the performances I, I want to ha- be a part of. Those are the, the stories that I want to be a part of, the characters I want to play. What are, what are some things that you haven't gotten to experience yet that, whether it's even 
as simple as I would like to uh, see this story that I love adapted into animation or into a movie or something that hasn't been done before. What is something that you would like to be a part of that you believe you either either haven't had the opportunity to just do or it just hasn't come to fruition yet from a, a creative side? Is there something that you're like itching to to do or to see being made in some sort of medium? Uh, it doesn't have to be animation. It could be whether it is even podcast, radio play. I don't know. Yeah, sure. So, so in in the past, you know, uh, I w- I've said that one of the things that motivated me to get involved in dubbing anime was that I had watched the anime series The Vision of Escaflowne. Oh yeah, and I I really wanted to play the character of Alan Shazar. I thought that I would be a good fit for that. And I actually, back in 99, I think, I emailed uh, Yutaka Maseba at Zero Limit because I knew that they had a lot of the Bondi titles. And and at that time, I had already started working in New York. Like I started dubbing anime in New York to build up my resume to hopefully get on Escaflone. And so I'd been been working in New York for a couple of years at that point. And I emailed Yutaka and I said, hey, we've got dubbing studios out here. If you ever want to, you know, send Escafloni our way, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it never happened. But then later when I moved to L.A. and I started working with Yutaka, he was like, I remember that email you oh sent. Oh, my that gosh. Was, that was very important. Yeah, it was very funny. Um, so like that, like at one point I wanted to play Prince Ashitaka and Princess Mononoke. But, you know, Billy Crudup played him. He's brilliant. Absolutely. It's fine. Those notions of I want to play these characters has sort of gotten in the background. Yeah. Because I'm now loving the surprise of where I get put. Huh. Right? Like, because I've played. Like I, So, like, a big thing. I always loved Captain Harlock. I don't know if you're familiar no. with Captain Harlock. So, Captain Harlock, uh, do you know uh, uh, the anime creator Leiji Matsumoto? Yes. He did um, Star Blazers, Captain Harlock, Galaxy Express, uh, Interstellar 555, Cosmo Warrior Zero. So, um he there's this he has this very famous character Captain Harlock which he's done a, a number of animated series and whatnot and I grew up watching some Captain Harlock and I love it my God this this space uh, pirate ship where the back of the spaceship looks like a Spanish galleon like made out of wood huh. it's it's gorgeous it's the best designed spaceship I'm on fascinated the planet. I mean that and the Millennium Falcon oh like, wow really, it's real close real <laughs> close um, so uh, it's it's just so romantic and so I always loved Captain Harlock. And I always wanted to play Captain Harlock. Well, I sort of got to. When we worked on the anime Last Exile, I played Alex Rowe. And he, he, he is the captain of this sort of pirate ship, the Sylvania. And, like, that's as Harlock as you yeah. get in modern times, you know? And then I actually worked on Cosmo Warrior Zero, which was a Leiji Matsumoto title. And Harlock shows up in the, in the show. And guess who played Captain Harlock in the show? Steve Oh, Loeb. God, yeah. Oh, well, perfect. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. great. So. I'm playing Zero. I was playing the hero of the show. And then he was playing Captain Harlock. And when I heard our voices, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm too young <laughs> to play Harlock. Yeah, you should be playing Harlock. I should be playing. We're in the right. Okay, good. Now, nowadays, I think maybe I am old enough to play Harlock. But, you know, back then, I was perfect. So I, I, I've let go of this notion of I have to play this character. Yeah. And now it's I want to play a character. I think that's the one that I probably would be able to contribute the most artistically to this project. But I'm open if you want to put me someplace else. <laughs> right? If, 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 that, if that doesn't work, you know, and, and invariably with that, I, 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 things sort of line up. But if you're asking me the question, what would I like to see manifest in storytelling that I haven't yeah, yet? sure. That would have been a hard question for me to answer until the end of the, what was it, the second season of The Mandalorian? Uh-huh. Where Luke Skywalker shows up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that broke me. <laughs> that broke mm-hmm. 
Because we got to see Luke in his full power. I, yes. We, he, he, he was actually, you know, the Star Wars version of Captain America. Mm-hmm. And I, and my heart sank because yeah. I was like, we never saw this. They never gave this to us. I want to see him in his black outfit being, being cool and doing the thing. Um, and so if I had any wish... They need to cast Sebastian yeah, Stan yeah. <laughs> and just have him do Luke Skywalker because you know, like the 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 deep fakery, yeah. that's fine for a cameo. But come on, you got to have an actual actor. And so, as and, and as much as I, I love um, Ewan McGregor as Obi Wan, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of the latest Kenobi series. But but I love the way Ewan McGregor plays. Absolutely, Kenobi. like I, I think he's great actor as Obi-Wan Kenobi and so him and Alec Guinness as sort of spiritual partners playing that character great I would be totally cool with Sebastian Stan playing a sort of mature version of Luke uh, to Mark Hamill and Mark Hamill will have bookended it they'll have been like the super young Luke and the old and then and I believe he's already got his blessing at this point too so it's just if there aren't talks about this happening already I pray that there will be soon because it would be phenomenal it's only it's only because I always identify with Luke I mean, I realize that people want to poo-poo Luke and, uh, you know, he's going to go to Tashi Station to get some power. <laughs> like, he's so whiny. And yes, he can be whiny in the beginning. But he was the knight. And that is the character that I identify with. I don't necessarily identify with the scoundrel. I understand the appeal of a Han Solo. Yeah. Or even a Lando. Like, I get it. I understand why they're appealing. But that's not the character I wanted to aspire to. I, I wanted the paladin. And so the idea of having Luke in his power being that... I think would be, I mean, that to me is like Aragorn, yes. you know, like the, the noble knight doing his thing. And, and so that's, that's what I would, I would like to see in storytelling. If they could give me. Luke. Oh gosh, I'm with you on that. I, I very similar sentiments about the Kenobi series. And I think that if there's ever an age of star Wars where they're kind of like, let's keep doing more of this. It is right now. So hopefully they saw the reception of that episode of the Mandalorian and they were like, huh, maybe we should keep doing stuff like this. It seems people are interested. Like, I don't think there was a bad thing said about that that episode, whereas a lot of some other stuff, there's been quite a lot of, you know, controversial opinions on whether or not it was received well or not. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Andor. I, Andor uh, is unbelievably yeah, yeah. good. I'm, and, and, it's, <laughs> and I don't like prequels. I can't stand prequels. And it's, it's a prequel to yeah, a prequel. Yeah. And it's so good. Like, how do they do that? And so, but what I notice is that all the stuff that isn't four, five, and six, episode four, five, and six of Star Wars, all the stuff that to me is working the best is all the stuff that is connected to four, five, and six in some way. So Rogue One is connected to episode four, and Andor is connected to Rogue One. And, you know, the the Bad Batch and stuff is connected. This stuff is, and so because they they stay closer to the design Right, there's a sort of lived-in gritty design that was the case in four, five, and six, and the more computer and slick it gets, the less Star Wars it feels yeah. to me. Um, and so uh, that's the, so. Yeah, hopefully with with Andor and, and I don't know, maybe maybe. What about know. the? But Andor's it, yeah, I've, I've seen the first few episodes. I haven't finished it yet. Not to any fault of the, ep- the series its own. Time commitment. I have other things coming up. And I have a fiancé who wants to watch our White Lotus and everything that comes our way. So I had to put that on pause. But what did you think What it's did you fine. think about the Boba Fett series? Did you have a, 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 a feeling about that? Because I had a very, very strong opinion about uh, I, I, I felt that the, mis- the mystery of Boba Fett 
what I loved about Boba Fett was explored in The Mandalorian, and I felt like, I was just like, I don't want to see Boba Fett like this. I liked him being this mysterious bounty hunter that I didn't know much about, and then it became kind of like, well, the, the Mandalorian was successful, let's just do that again. Oh yeah, Boba Fett, he's another bounty hunter. That's the way I felt about it. I believe it was Tamora who said, the actor who said, I'm talking too much. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I and I think the problem the problem with Boba Fett it could to, it totally could have worked. The problem with Boba Fett is they hadn't figured out what um what the theme was. Is it is he Lawrence of Arabia? Mm. Right? If he is cuz he's he was raised with the sand people, then let him be Lawrence of Arabia or let him be Paul Atreides with the Fremen. Yeah. Like there's so many templates you could pull from and modify and it would have worked if not fine is he elliot ness and the huts are al capone and the mom <laughs> great then make then then make the untouchables right then then make or 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 is it the magnificent seven is he the noble samurai and the bandits are coming there's so many. And the reason why Mandalorian works is because it does take that yeah. template. It takes Lone Wolf and Cub, which I'm not sure if you're yes. familiar with. And I mean, that's exactly what they've done. For yeah. your listeners who may not know, Lone Wolf and Cub is a very famous manga about a samurai who is uh, basically betrayed and has to make a decision about whether he's going to commit uh, suicide for his honor or whether he's going to go to get revenge on the people who have shamed him. And he decides to go on the revenge route, but he has a very young child, a son, and he doesn't know what to do with him. And so he gives the son an option. Do you come with me or, or do I kill you now? Because that would be the honorable thing mm -hmm. to do. And the child, he gives like the child a choice between a, a, a ball and a sword. And if he chooses the ball, he's going to kill him. And if he chooses the sword, he's going to go. And this is going to damn their souls to hell and whatever. The boy chooses th mm -hmm. the sword. And he builds him a little uh, basket, a little perambulator carriage. And it's got this funny noise when it gotta, 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 gotta. It's exactly what's happening with the Mandalorian and the child. It's the exact same yeah. structure. So when the Mandalorian started, I went, oh, this is Lone Wolf and Cub. That's not a bad thing. Take the template and and surprise me with it. Do something new and cool with it, right? And I think for the most part they did. There, there was some there was some really cool yeah. stuff in it. And Lily, there's a ball that, <laughs> that the, the the baby Yoda has to play, the Grogu has to play with. Um, and so I go, okay, that's great. But with Boba Fett, it felt like ah, you didn't yeah. choose. You took a little column A and a little column B and a little column C, and they don't all yeah. mix. That's those flavors don't all work. If you just stuck to one, I think it could have worked. But they didn't. They didn't make a decision, and that's a, that's a shame. I, personally, I would have wanted like a very stoic Lawrence of Arabia. Mm. I think it would have been cool for Boba Fett to have been this space guy who then really got humbled by the Sarlacc pit, and then had to rebuild himself in the back to tank and yeah. everything else as a sort of dances with wolves, Lawrence of Arabia type. And then I think I would have totally, totally been in with it. Because I think if you tried to do the Untouchables Elliot Ness route, he'd have to talk too much. Yeah. Because he has, then he has to be the do-gooder. And I, that's not no. Boba. I don't think that's Boba. And so the idea of Boba Fett, Boba, because when Lawrence says Arabia for the Arabians, that's what I feel like Boba Fett yeah. is like. He wants Mos Espa for the Tatooians. Like he, he's not there to lord over. And he's not there just to bust mobster heads. Yeah. 
Um, so that's that's I think, and it's I just I wish. They gosh, what could have been? What could have been? Ugh. Gosh, well, Crispin, I, I have taken way too much of your time. I want to ask you one final fun question, if that's okay with you. And I, I it, sure. it's going to be a little bit out there, but if you if you don't mind, bear with me. As we've seen, I mean, I was just talking with somebody. I do uh, like mentorship for uh, previous NYU students, and part of like the NY the alumni pro- program. And I was just talking with somebody uh, the other day, one of my mentees, and they were asking me, they're like, "How do I do this and that?" And I was like, "You know, now that I'm really realizing this, I've been doing this for a decade, and what I'm saying to you may not be." applicable right now i'm like it's probably gonna be very different i'm i still as crazy as it sounds i still come from the days of sending in my headshots and the manila envelope and doing the postcards like that was a part of my journey and i was like huh i can give you what i've done and i can give you what i'm seeing today still pursuing my career in a very similar fashion i'm still a part of the system and the beast and i'm still working my way up as some might put it but i was curious like for someone like you if you had been given the MIB kind of like flash where it erased everything you knew. And, and and let's also say that the world, you know, everything they knew about Crispin Freeman, all of your performances ceased to exist. You didn't remember any of this and you had to pursue, you know, or, or if you chose to pursue acting today, what do you think you would be the first thing you would do? And would you uh, pursue it kind of the same way or would it be something else for you? I do not know. <laughs> it's, it's re- that's a really tough question, if only because we are now in the situation where we still have, as of the taping of this podcast, we're stealing, still dealing with COVID, yeah. circling the globe, variants, people getting sick. And so it's difficult to get together in person to do yeah. things. And so much of the training that I got was bodies and space interacting with mm-hmm. each other. Um, and physicalizing my acting, and that's really hard to do over Zoom. Quite near impossible. Um, but uh, kudos to the people yeah, who are very, able to to make do of it. Yeah, it's very challenging. Um, so the areas that are open now that were not open when I was younger were things like YouTube, the ability to uh, self-publish video content. It just didn't exist when you were younger, uh, when I was younger. Um, Also, games. The sophistication of storytelling in games and the viability of games as a storytelling medium was just not a thing when I was playing combat on my Atari 2600. Um, So, uh, and I know that as a kid, I always had a fascination with technology. And so I have a feeling I probably would have been seduced by the dark side Mm -hmm. of the force and wanted to just play with all the tech because mm. all the toys are there and they're so shiny and they go bleep, 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 bleep. Um, but I am very grateful that I had to figure out how to interact with other people using emotional intelligence. Mm. And that emotional intelligence is rooted in our physiology. It's rooted in our bodies. It's rooted in the physical structure of our brain. And how that brain is shaped and grows depending on the interactions and the stimulus it has. And I feel like that emotional intelligence is harder to come by Mm. now. And yet is so much more important in order for it to work. Um, 
without that emotional intelligence, without things feeling emotionally authentic, relatable, sympathetic, empathetic, doesn't stick with us. I don't care how many polygons you put on that transformer. It's not going to touch me the way Optimus Prime did in the animated film when he Mm. dies. Like, uh, just what? So uh, I would hope that at some point I would have the wisdom to say, I've got to make sure that with all the tech, with all the flashy platforms, with all the algorithms and the likes and the trying to game the system and everything else, that at the core of it, there would be a heart, a human heart beating with emotional authenticity, with desires, with fears, with love, with hate, um, with compassion, with anger. And that that heart does, does not change because our biology doesn't change. Um, and without that heart, it's disposable. Mm. I mean, is anyone really going to care about the Michael Bay Transformers movies 20 years from now? Are they really? I don't think so. I... I, I would like to agree. I, I would like to agree. I mean, I don't call me crazy, but I don't think yeah. so. You know, maybe as as, a, as an artifact. <laughs> but but the same way that like, just take Star Trek, the first Star Trek movie, pretty forgettable, because it's a lot of tech and it's a lot of philosophy and it's not a lot of yeah. heart. Wrath of Khan, people can just can't let go of that yeah. film, even today. And I remember, I, so I went to go see Independence Day in the theaters when it first came out. And the big thing, I don't know if you know this about Independence Day, but the big thing was, it was the first time they had computers moving like lots of different planes on screen at, t- at the, at the yeah. same time. Because before then, in Star Wars, you had to do everything in the dark because your models had wires. Yes. And so you, it needed to be in space and you needed to mat them properly. And if you look at some of the old versions of Star Wars, you can see yes. the matting, like the moving mat around the, right? So there's so much work. And so when they did the snow speeders in Empire Strikes Back, it was really yeah. hard because it was daylight. And so they had to do this thing where they had to make the snow speeder slightly transparent in order to composite it. And so if you look at the early versions of Empire, you can see through the A pillar of the snow speeder slightly. <laughs> it's slightly transparent. It should because they, they couldn't yeah. figure it out. Like it's just optically, it's so hard to do optically. Independence Day, they could do it. They had the computers, they had the, the, the crunching power, the horsepower, and so you had like 70 different F-16 fighters working, flying all over the place, and they're like, oh my God, isn't this great? Isn't this so impressive? I was so bored, and I couldn't figure out why. And I went home, and I said, what is a sci-fi film that really grabs my heart? Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. Let me put it in. It's two slow-as-balls spaceships, barely moving, with music going, and I'm riveted. I cannot take my eyes off the screen. Why? Because it has heart. Because it has... William Shatner as as uh, as Kirk saying I'm at the middle of my life what do I do right like I've quote done everything I'm passing that midpoint of life what do I do and you go oh my god 
right? And that's and 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 this notion of and there we go, the death of Spock, right? He accepts it. That's why it's a tragic death. He goes, I, I know by doing this I will die, and I would rather have that physical death than spiritual death. I would rather do that than than uh betray my principles mm. as a Vulcan. Right? Principles that I've er- outlined earlier in the film. It's such a good film. God, it's a good film. Right? And so that emotional heart will make that film still compelling, even as the tech and the special effects look a little dated and, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't matter. Because it, it still works. Mm. And so that, it, 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 how do I find that as a young kid now? Man, you got to go watch the good stuff. I can't tell you how many times I have students of mine saying, well, I really like this performance in this such and such game. And I'm like, yeah, there's some good performances in games. There are. But there's aspects of games that are stiff because of the technology. Yes. It's like, I, I, it's like saying, I really love this puppet performance. Yes, that puppet performance, I'm sure, uh-huh. is brilliant. But are you going to learn the best acting from studying puppets? Or are you going to learn the best acting from studying some of the best actors and seeing their faces in real time mm-hmm. moving? Then you can take that and translate it into motion capture or whatever yeah. you're doing. And, you you know, you can translate it into, I'm only going to use my voice to do that and, and pull that off. But, you know, all these best actors, they had to do it face-to-face with other people. And they had to do it in real life, either theater or film, and not through the mediating the, the mediating um, medium. Uh, that's a, there's a <laughs> the, the The mediating format of puppetry, which is motion yeah. capture, or 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 something else that 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 divorces us from seeing the actor in in real time doing mm. their thing. It's it's I, I, I'm always fascinated by what the next thing might be. You know, we've in my lifetime I've seen you know things go from uh, you know just from video game aspect. You know, uh, no voice acting in any kind of content to having voice acting to motion capture, to facial capture, to performance capture. I'm curious if you have uh, either a desire or an in- uh, an inclination to what might be the next thing that would, you know, um, because I think what we're just talking about here is how all these gadgets and gizmos and these effects can hinder performances. Is there is there any sort of technology that can help performance maybe (laughs) is there something that can be done in in our technological revolution that will aid uh or or help what used to exist which was pretty much uh practical effects and real person-to-person performances well there's always a give and take so marshall McLuhan has this thing uh he calls the um is it the tetralogy I can't remember the exact formula, but there's basically four things. And when a new technology shows up, you have to ask, what is it? What does it mm-hmm. offer? What does it take away? And what does it bring back that didn't exist, that used to exist, but wasn't as popular? <sighs> so people like to think about technology and th- say, oh, well, all this new technology is always worse for mm. us. Well, guess what? They said that about yeah. books. <laughs> when the printing press came out, people thought no one's going to have a memory anymore. <laughs> Because you can just write it all down. Like, this was a serious yeah, concern. Yeah. <laughs> okay? So, but it brings back certain things, like the novel brings back a certain intimacy of storytelling that was hard to get 
when you couldn't have a printing press that could reach uh, sub-genres of readers, mm. right? If you only had one book, like usually cultures had one sacred book or one spiritual book full of stories, those stories were sort of sacrosanct, whether it's the Iliad and the Odyssey or the Mahabharata or the Bible or whatever. And there's not a whole lot of change, uh-huh. <laughs> right? But when you can get the printing press, you can get fairy tales and legends. And that's, that's why you have, you know, you can write a book, like Jane Austen can write a book and be financially yeah. successful, right? Because she's got this new marketplace. So it brings back certain things. Yeah. And so every technology gives and takes. And so the... Video games are the first new medium of entertainment since mm-hmm. cinema. And people had issues with film, right, in comparison to live action sure. theater, right? Film film was a gimmick. Movie making was, was a, a toy. You know, if you really wanted to see a proper performance, you needed to see, you know, somebody on stage, one of these famous actors from, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century doing their thing yeah. on stage, um, and now we don't think about film mm. that way. Same thing with video games. Video games are, are approaching, hopefully, some level of maturity with their storytelling. And we're still trying to work out what does it mean to have an interactive story? How, what are the rules of storytelling in that? The same way that they had to work out with film. You know, what's the sort of Hollywood tradition of the two-hour film? How, how do we do that sort of classic first act, second act, third act storytelling? Yeah. Because it's not how Shakespeare did stuff, Right. <laughs> Shakespeare's doing stuff in five yeah. acts because of the ca- because of the candles. After twenty minutes, the candles burn down. You have to replace the candles, so that's why uh-huh. it's five acts. But then when he's got Blackfriars and he can have longer lights, it becomes more like two mm-hmm. and three acts. So like, like technology changes stuff. <laughs> so if you're asking me what's the new big thing, I think it's VR. Mm-hmm. So that VR to me, virtual reality is the first new expressive medium we've had since games, and I realize that there's overlap there right that most vr experiences can be game type things but there's that's to me is the first new medium Mm -hmm. that we've had since interactive storytelling in games where you have a a a chip that is generating the graphics in real time that you're interacting with right you didn't have that in film Uh, and now with vr you have something that actually involves your body and the rules of storytelling that might work in film, and even we've translated somewhat into games with cutscenes, like cutscenes in VR are weird, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like just, that's not how we want to interact with VR. So, like, that's a whole new um, grammar, a whole new syntax of how that medium is going to be most effective communicating, and what is dictating. Whether that syntax is going to be com- communicative or not, the human mm-hmm. body. We're back to the human physiology. What does the human body respond to in storytelling, in in visual, uh, in interactive graphics, and what does it not? Because VR can do all sorts of crazy stuff that people are not terribly yeah. interested in. Right? If it doesn't, if it doesn't hit the human physiology and make the human heart respond, it's not going to survive. Yeah, yeah, and I mean VR is. It's fascinating, and then you see people making movies from this. You see people like I even even the idea of of seeing like stand up comedy in VR or seeing a live theater play in VR. I'm curious if it's going to hit the same way uh, to that. So point. that's an interesting thing. VR can bring back the theater yeah. experience, right? VR takes away the notion of the film experience. 
where you have a, 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 something in, that's in a painting, it's in a frame, right? That's how a film works. And you enjoy the cinematography because the cinematographer has decided what to put in that frame and what not to put yeah. in that frame. But in theater, it's not quite like that. It's true that in a proscenium theater, you know, you've got what's on the proscenium. But that's not all that's going on because in a theater, you are also reacting to the people around yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And there are some theater plays where the actors come from behind. I mean, in Greek theater, you, you, you have the entranceways from the back of the theater that people come out. So it's, it is more 360 degree. So while we have lost people going to the theater because of the invention in film, that took theater away, VR might bring the theater experience yeah. back. It would be very interesting to see that. I mean, we're already we already saw during COVID that being uh, utilized in sporting events. They would have quite literally a seat that was like a ticket you buy to sit in that seat and experience live games from this VR thing. Again, you weren't necessarily able to interact with the people around you, so that's kind of a fascinating thing to think about. Imagine they have a hundred of those devices where you're interacting with the VR person next to you, um, or even just in a metaverse way. You know, if it's a, an actual play being done in like a metaverse type scenario um but it wouldn't it be fascinating to to be uh in a broadway theater uh experiencing a broadway play from what is your vr suit and seeing live people around you i think that might be <laughs> I, I i would like to try that i i think it'd be pretty fascinating yeah yeah so that's those are the formats how they're going to mature that's up to geniuses yeah yeah, yeah. That's up to whatever geniuses show up. You know, it was D.W. Griffith who did it in mm -hmm. film. You know, he was the one who figured out sort of what we call now classic Hollywood story structure technique. And he made the first feature length film. Before then, films were like 15 minutes long maximum, 20, maybe 30 yeah. minutes long. And he's like, no, I'm going to make a two hour film and tell a story. Okay. So it takes, it takes people, you know, unfortunately, it was a rather racist film. Uh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> yes, Birth of a Nation. Uh. Ugh, ugh, not good. Content not good. Structure impressive. <laughs> Content not good. Um, so, but you know, it takes it takes uh, structural geniuses yeah. like that to 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 figure to figure this stuff out. And so, time will tell. Uh, Crispin, last thing I'd love to ask you, and this doesn't have to be related to anything professional. It could be life, and we've already talked about so many experiences that you've had. But kind of the inspiration of the show was really kind of um, experiences in life that shape us as people and professionals. And I'm curious if there is an experience outside of something we've already talked about that has stuck with you for a while and you feel that either you've spoke about it before and you enjoy passing this bit of information on from that experience or something as simple as, you know, for me, I think about, um, oh gosh, you know, when I lost like my cat, that experience of in my life shaped me in a way that I can't define. It has changed me to my core that that experiencing have, having a, a kitten and having lost that kitten and who it's turned me into. I became a vegan. It, it like had a chain reaction of effect on me in the way I look at things. Is there an experience you had even as simple as a, a working with a specific director or seeing a certain show? Is there something that uh, an experience you've had in your life that you think uh, it, people would benefit from hearing how it affected you um, when it had happened? Yeah, it's pretty personal, mm -hmm. but it happened when I was about, it's well, personal, it's funny, I wrote about it in my college <laughs> essay, so somebody read it, um, but, uh, and I may have talked about this in the podcast before, but I went, when I was younger, around, I don't know, 11 years old, I think, um, I was sent to a camp, sleepaway camp sort of thing, and uh 
my parents sent me off to a camp in Cody, Wyoming called Rawhide Ranch Camp. <laughs> you will never find a more vicious hive of toxic masculinity than Rawhide Ranch <laughs> Camp. <laughs> and, what a name. Uh, so, yeah, I know, right? Um, so I, I got dropped in this environment, and I was a very spoiled child. You know, I, 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 was, I was very soft. I would cry easily. I would get my feelings hurt very easily. Um, I, you know, and so uh, not that I was demanding spoiled. Like, I wasn't Veruca Salt. <laughs> but I was, I, I was sort of used. Yeah, I want to bloom, but now, Mommy. I wasn't like that so much. But I was just using to, I was used to just sort of getting what I wanted because it was usually no big deal. And, and I wasn't usually asking for anything crazy, but there was never, there was never any lack. Sure. Should we say, right. There was never a feeling of lack of which I know many, many people have to deal with that in their lives. And I was blessed, fortunate enough that that wasn't usually a thing for me. And so I, I was just used to having my nest feathered and I'm dumped into Rawhide Ranch Camp and oh my God. Right. So I'm soft. I'm spoiled. I cry easily, but man, it was tough. And there was a barn hand there who had become very popular with the campers, more popular than our own counselors. We were all in cabins and we had usually two counselors mm -hmm. to a cabin. But this guy, and it was because it was a ranch camp, they had horses and we would ride horses and whatnot. And this barn hand who worked there would hang out with the campers a lot. And he really became this mentor figure to a lot of these mm. kids. He, 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 I don't know. He sort of became a guru. And I think he had the best of intentions. I, I don't think he mm -hmm. was nefarious at all. But kids followed him for wisdom. Mm. I did too. And at one point, the kids said something and they hurt my feelings and I was crying and I was sensitive. And he took me out into a field. And then we sat down, like we were sitting down the grasses, like almost oh, over gosh. our heads. And I'm crying because of what they said to me and everything. We're sitting cross-legged facing each other. And he says to me, Crispin, I'm very sorry to hear about all these things that happened to you and how upset you are about them. But I don't want you to cry anymore. In fact, I don't want you to cry ever again. Part of being a man is not crying. There are times in my life when I have felt like I wanted to cry. And I don't do it anymore because I'm a mm. man. At 11 years old, with a mentor figure like this, it was extremely yeah. influential. And so I took it to heart and I didn't cry. This had two very interesting effects on me. One, not only did I become emotionally resilient, right? Which probably served me in the sort of competitive environment sure. that I was in. I also had physical resilience. Like it was very hard for me to experience physical pain because mm. I was just shut down. And this lasted through most of high school until I got to the Cherubs program yes. that I mentioned before, which is this wonderful theater training program that happens between junior and senior year at Northwestern University and people from all over the country come to it. I auditioned. I got in. I don't know how. How in the world am I an actor when I'm this emotionally disconnected? I don't quite know. <laughs> But clearly there's a hunger there. We're back to that whole hunger thing, hunger yeah. fascination. Clearly there's a hunger there because something is missing because I've been so emotionally disconnected for so much of my young life. And it's such, such toxic mm -hmm. masculinity. My acting teacher in the Cherubs program was a wonderful man 
and like once a week we would get together everyone in the in the thing and we'd we'd have a big meeting and then we'd split off into our different classes and he was the leader of our class and during our big meeting when everyone was there he got up and he said i'd just like to ask everyone who's here in the program to just have a moment of silence for my father he's sick with cancer he's going in for surgery and it would really mean the world to me if we just had a moment of silence for my father and wished him mm. the best in my mind because i have been so emotionally disconnected I was incredibly mercenary in the way that I thought about things, and I had no empathy. So in my mind, I thought, well, people die of cancer. Like, it's awful. It's awful the way my brain was working. And so after this, we all, everyone was streaming out of the meeting, and he was standing there, and people were coming up to him and giving him hugs, you know, and say, oh, I'm so sorry, John. You know, I hope things go well, and blah, blah, blah. And I knew I was sort of one of his favorite students. And so I was like, I feel like I have to go up. So I go up and I gave him a big hug and I gave him a hug and he pulled me, he sort of pulled me away and looked at me in the eye and said, thank you, Crispin. That means the world to me. And I felt awful. I felt so fake. I felt like I was such an insincere snit. Like how dare I hug him? in this inauthentic way when I wasn't, I didn't have any of the empathy or sympathy that I should have. And it was all because I'd been shut mm. down because I was told not to cry. And so I literally leaned up against a tree with like looking down at my feet and like the tears would start to come to my eyeballs and instinctively I would suck them back. Like I had this physiological response. And so I had literally had to wait until the moisture built up on the edge of my eyelid until it finally dropped onto like my sweatpants and then like it was floodgates. It all came out. That taught me. And then I like, I went running to John. I'm like, John, I'm so sorry. I was completely insincere when I did that, but I totally mean it now. And he's like, it's okay, Crispin. It's okay. Relax. Calm down. You're going to be all right. Right. Um, he was uh -huh. so sweet. Um, but that taught me the importance and the strength of emotional vulnerability. Yeah. That being so macho as to disconnect your heart is an incredibly fearful, weak place to function from. You are reactive. You are frightened. You are panicked. The strength comes from saying, yes, I hurt. And I'm going to address that now, like a responsible mm -hmm. human being. And I have to say, I sort of thought that's what being an adult was. I thought that the whole point of being an adult was becoming emotionally mature enough and emotionally healthy enough to have a pretty good handle on your internal uh, life. Yeah. Well, clearly, we can look at the adults in the world right now, many of them in the public sphere especially, and they don't behave like that at all. And in fact, when they are called to account about that, they troll, they dismiss, they, you know, dunk on you, pwned you. When it is that emotional vulnerability that is the strong point to say, yes, I hurt. Yes, I love. Yes, I care about this. And that's not my weakness. It is your shallowness that makes you behave in these sociopathic ways. Right? So that, that was the moment where I realized that I could marry passion with articulation. Right? That being a man wasn't about being untouchable 
or impenetrable or bulletproof. That was ridiculous. You know, one of the, one of the things I love about Lord of the Rings is when Aragorn tells Frodo, you know, where do we, they're, they're at tall Brandir. They, they've gone down the river and they yep. have to make a decision. Are they going to go to Gondor or are they going to go mm-hmm. to Mordor? You know, and Boromir's saying, oh, we should go to Gondor and save Minas Tirith. And Aragorn sort of would like to work on Minas Tirith too, because, you know, he's mm-hmm. going to be king there. He wants to save his kingdom. Um, but he knows the obligation is go to Mordor. And so he goes to Frodo, what do we do? And Frodo says, give me an hour and I'll give you my response. He goes, okay, you'll have your hour. And he goes off and all hell breaks loose. And Aragorn is running around, basically. And in the book, he says, everything I have done is amiss and all my decisions are bad. No, actually they aren't. Aragorn, you've been actually a really great leader. Stuff just fell apart. And even now you're doing your best to try to bring it all together. But that vulnerability of saying, I am responsible for this somehow. Even if it's like, even if I wasn't directly causally responsible for it, it's my responsibility to fix it. It's my responsibility to somehow take this mess and make Mm. something out of it. And that, that kind of, uh, that kind of emotional availability and intelligence is what I realized I, I couldn't, I couldn't mm-hmm. go back. I couldn't go back to that, that shut down place, that toxic yeah. place that, which so much of algorithms <laughs> and technology want to, I mean, it's what, it's what Joseph Campbell talks about in the power of the Mysteries, where he talks about yeah. Darth Vader being more the suit than the man, where the impersonal demands of a system whether that system is a government or a technology or something, some sort of system is coming in and saying, you must be a cog on our wheels. And the human desire to resist and say, no, there is a heart in here. It is beating. And the system needs to serve me, not the other way around, Mm -hmm. thank you very much. Um, And so I think that really showed me that the only way to get through life and my artistry was to be emotionally vulnerable um and i would say to many people who are pursuing acting if you think acting is about looking cool and getting likes guess what all the best actors are extreme masochists they get up there and they reveal themselves emotionally to everybody and they sweat and they cry and they bleed and that's Mm -hmm. when we applaud is because they went through the ringer if you think you're going to get through an acting scene smelling like a rose you didn't really go through it and and I think there are people who might think that and it is a, a, a thank you for sharing that in a in a very I saw that very clearly with my father from his father the way he displayed that masculinity and the way you should be a man and I saw from my perspective it's so funny how the generations have changed and even to me I saw my father wrestling with what he had learned from his father so i saw all the things that he had learned from don't cry be a man screaming and violence and all those things i saw him do those same things to me but i saw behind all of that the vulnerability that he had as well and that fight that he constantly had so i think when it came to me when i was on the receiving end of all of that kind of stop crying be a man don't do that stuff it was it, i i i saw everything i didn't want that is the furthest thing that i ever wanted to experience and and display for other people and that 
the vulnerability he couldn't allow for himself is something that I wanted to be pride. I wanted to be proud of the the vulnerability that I had because I saw someone up close and personal struggle with that like fiercely. Him have that combative fire and uh, rage, and this is the way it's supposed to be. This is how you are a man. And I, at the same time, I'd see him walk away from that argument that we would have. And the sadness on the turn, like just the complete sadness for why can't, why am I like this? Like that wrestle. And um, yeah, so thank you just for sharing that. And I think it's extremely important, especially for, for, for men who are unfortunately subjected to that type of environment to understand that it's okay to be vulnerable. And especially if you want to be an actor, it's kind of like one of the key components to unlocking, I think, whatever potential you might have to influence people through your storytelling so uh thank you for for sharing that it's extremely important and uh something i very much resonate with with in my own life so uh thank you no you're you're welcome i mean it it, it's the it's the scene in the hobbit where thorn is on Mm. his deathbed and and bilbo has made all of these he's tried so hard to make this work out so people don't die he's given the arkenstone to the elves and the the elven king says Bilbo Baggins, you are more worthy of that mithril shirt than many elven princes who have come before you. The level of emotional maturity in Bilbo Baggins to try to save his friends by ending a war. Like, they're just blown away. And Thorin doesn't want to see it because he's so blinded. And then on his deathbed, he says, if more of us valued, you know, food and cheer over hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. But sad or merry, I must leave it now, mm. you know. I wish to part in friendship. Like, Thorne has this sort of come-to-vulnerability moment. And then in the book, it talks about how after he dies, Bilbo goes away and cries and cries <laughs> until his voice is hoarse and he has no more tears mm-hmm. to shed. And yet he's the one who has the resilience to resist the one <laughs> ring! <laughs> Right? I mean, this that he's the most resilient one in the whole story, him yeah. and Frodo. You know? And it's like, yeah, that's where the strength comes from. It's why Tolkien made sure that Gandalf was not a Balrog. Yeah. Right? That they they're they, they are made of the same stuff. I believe the Balrog are, yeah. are Maya, you know, and Gandalf is a Maya. They're these sort of demigods. And so, you know, no, Gandalf is powerful because he feels things, because he cares. Um, And that's a human strength and and not. And and the other the other type of behavior is brittle. It it cracks. (sighs) Yeah. uh, Gosh, very much so. And. Who would have thought that the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and Tolkien would have so many applicable life lessons that I think you have to truly read. Who would have thought it's the whole I, point? I mean, that's I say the that whole point of metaphysical storytelling. <laughs> I say yeah. that facetiously. I mean, the fact that the, the fact that people think this is somehow a revelation, I got it. When I yeah. was a kid, I watched The Hobbit and I go, I'm Bilbo because I'm small. I'm a yeah. small kid. I identify with the small kid. Did I know that Bilbo in the animated film was 50 years old? No, no I didn't know that. <laughs> but, you know, that's, but he's the one without a beard. So clearly he's yeah. the young one. Like, I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I, I thought this was sort of why these stories were told. You told fairy tales to teach life yeah. lessons. 
And the idea that you're that somehow it's just content to be consumed and not to be internalized is very I odd know. to me. And I think what we were saying earlier about the technology sometimes getting in the way of new stories that are trying to do that becomes one of the problems is it's the story is not front and center and it's it, we get overwhelmed by what can we do as uh, an art form from the technological perspective rather than what can we say and what story can we share Uh we just want to show it. Do you know Glenn Keane, the animator for Disney? Uh, give me a point of reference. So, so do, do, are you familiar with the Nine yeah. Old Men yeah. from Disney? Okay, so the Nine Old Men were Disney's original animators. They did Pinocchio, Bambi, mm-hmm. the whole right. Okay, two of the Nine Old Men that are very famous are, are uh, uh, Frank and Ollie, uh, Frank Thomas mm-hmm. and Ollie Johnston. All right. If you've seen The Iron Giant, you will see them make cameos in the film where the train gets and goes, go on, Frank, tell Uh me what you saw. Like those are the animated versions of Frank (laughs) and Ollie. Okay. Very famous animators. They were friends. They lived next to each other. They were amazing. Glenn Keane was the next generation. Glenn Keane animated John Silver. Uh, he animated uh, the 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 Eagle in Rescuers Down Under. He's done a, he's done amazing okay. stuff. Glenn Keane is like one of the top flight animators that are still alive today. They were working on Rapunzel, which has eventually sure. became Tangled, and they had all this computer stuff they could do, and they had done all this stuff with her hair and sparkles and secondary and tertiary and quaternary motion and all this stuff, right? And he showed it off to Ollie Johnston, one of these nine old men who was the original Disney animators. And Glenn, you know, Ollie is, is a, his hero, right? He looks up to him as a mentor. And Glenn is showing us to Ollie and going, isn't this great? I look at all this stuff. And Ollie goes, yes, Glenn, it's very nice, but what is she thinking? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Space plan, <sighs> right? Like, just what? Yeah. Thank you, Ollie. What is she thinking? We hadn't thought about that. It's great that you've got a... <laughs> yeah, we, we, it's great. Then that's the seduction. That's the dark side. You get seduced by the mm-hmm. tech and you forget, what is she thinking? Now, is it possible to use all that tech and make something amazing? Incredibles, the first Incredibles movie. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. So good. Right? So, sure, of course it is. But you've got to... You've got to keep the heart in there. You've got to keep the vulnerability. You've got to keep the emotional accessibility or else it's just polygons. How many polygons died to make this film? God. Crispin, I I noticed this probably like 30 minutes ago into our conversation. And thank you for doing this as much as possible. (laughs) I was like, I think I might have been consumed by my computer monitor. I just constantly listening to you. I lean in. You have such a a, a beautiful way of kind of... Decoding things and and transcribing them for uh, someone to digest and and to take such meaning out of something like we were just talking about, like these stories that are so influential and to break them down into um, these things that are applicable to us and why it's so impactful on us as, as human beings and artists even more importantly. And I just could listen to you talk all day. I could listen to you tell stories oh, for hours. <laughs> and I, I'm really just grateful to have had the opportunity to sit here and chat with you. And it's been um, it's been a real pleasure. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing so much with us and the audience. And uh, yeah, it, it's uh, I, I hope to have you back someday. This is just uh, it's great hearing you talk. I could do it all day. Well, you're you're welcome. So th- th- thank you so much for having me. As you say, there is a wonderful uh, circularity to um, the pattern mm. of things. And so it is nice to be in different stages of one's life and to check off the fact that you've got that badge. Yeah. Right? I am The fact that I was in your position 
where I had voice actors or performers that I had looked up to or admired, and then I got to work with them as the new kid on the block, right? And now for me to be in that sort of position where you're sort of coming up as a journeyman and I get to be that to you, that's very satisfying, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's, you know, being able to be, it's, it's, it's like a uh, rites of passage in one's life, you know? And so thank you for helping me satisfy. <laughs> that well, it is my pleasure to have done so, but it truly is. And, uh, uh, you have been, I, I mean, I could say this on and on and on, and I won't bore you with it anymore, but I'll finally say, you know, as a, as a final, uh, goodbye to this, I will say that it has been performances and, People like you that are more than just the performances that give back to the community, it does not go unnoticed, especially like, like people by me and my peers around me, people that are of my age group that are coming in to have uh, the public service that you do for us with things with like voice acting mastery, the classes that you offer, the seminars, you have a freaking scholarship, all these things that you do to give back. It is one of the things that has become a core value of me as an artist. You know, obviously I'm in love with acting and all of the storytelling as much, but that part that comes part and parcel is is the giving back and, and shepherding the, the new age of, of performers that come in and to see someone like you kind of set that example. Um, and, you know, other people that have had similar things, you know, uh, other similar podcasts, but Really, someone like you that have been, has been doing this for so long. I mean, we're talking 10 plus years of voice acting mastery and continuing to teach. Uh, if anybody here is, is curious about taking a class, please, is, is, are your classes on your website for, for people to, to find? Is it CrispinFreeman.com for your classes? So, yeah, if you go to CrispinFreeman.com, there are links there to VoiceActingMastery.com, yes. which is the podcast. And on VoiceActingMastery.com, that's where the classes are listed. Right now, because of COVID, I'm only teaching online classes. I'm not teaching any in-person yes. classes. Uh, but you can get on a mailing list for the online classes because they sell out rather quickly. And so I always send out an email to the mailing list saying when the class is going to go on sale so that everybody can try to get it when it gets first on sale. If you're on my online classes mailing list, you'll be the first to know when that class is going to be on sale. Um, and then I also have a website for my mythology scholarship stuff, which is called Mythology and Meaning. So uh, if you go to mythologyandmeaning.com, there's a trailer for my presentations. Unfortunately, I can't do them in person right now, which is yeah. how I used to do them. But there's a trailer there, so you can see them. There's a, a couple of videos of me talking about some So There's a cool video of me talking with uh, Juan Carlos Bagnell about the difference between vampires and zombies mythologically, which is a yes. fun conversation. Um, uh, and I hope to be able to be putting out more of the mythology content in the future, most likely online, since that's how things are probably going to yeah. work for me right now. Um, so, but yeah, crispinfreeman.com. I mean, that's mostly for me as a voice actor, but there's very clear links there to voiceactingmaster.com and mythologyandmeaning.com if those are stuff you Absolutely. Want to check out and too. stay tuned for the class you're going to be teaching by Haptic Suit once that is available, right? To merge the VR and uh, acting class experience, right? <laughs> Yeah, seriously, haptic man. That's gonna that's gonna be a thing, isn't it? Um, but again, you know, it's gotta it's gotta mature, and we gotta see, and it's it'll it'll again it'll it'll bring back it'll obsolete certain things, and it'll bring Absolutely. back other things. Uh, well, Crispin, this has been such a pleasure and a gift, and a little bit of a surreal experience for me throughout this whole uh, you know interaction with you and previous interactions with you. So thank you for checking off a box on my badge list as well, uh, and being a guest on the podcast. And uh, thank you just so much for everything you do. It is. Um, it, I really appreciate it on behalf of everybody else who's in a similar position to me in my in my career. Uh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon, Crispin.
Guys, I said this at the end of the episode, but I felt myself leaning in so much. I actually have a little bit of a cramp in my back because that's how engrossed I was in listening to Crispin talk. Obviously, I said this before. I said it in the podcast. I say, I say it over and over again. Crispin truly is one of those people where, uh, God, I mean, it, he's going to probably hate to hear this, but, you know, really an idol of mine in in my pursuits of of pursuing voice acting and specifically storytelling through animation and video games and anime. Somebody who has done all of those things and done them at the highest caliber and does them with such veracity and passion and, and is truly a truth teller. And to give it all back to us for free over, you know, almost 200 episodes over 10 years to see somebody who has that kind of dedication and love for what they do and love for other people to enjoy what he does. It is one of the most inspiring things I've experienced as a professional and to have been a participant of it to, you know, been a consumer of uh, uh of his podcast and of his performances and then to be in the same room with this person quite literally performing and then interviewing them it's it's a surreal experience for me he's so generous he's so brilliant i i mean he's so smart and it's it really made me as he's talking question things about how much how much that enforces who he is as a performer the amount that he has digested and retained I can like, I can smell it in his performances. When he's playing a character that is as knowledgeable and intellectual and is, and is passionate, like all of the, the ingredients that make Winston so unique and so real, even though he is a, a fictional primate, I see that in Crispin. I see he has the capacity to be a brilliant scientist and also, you know, <laughs> this insanely strong uh, primate. He is without a doubt one of the most gifted performers of our of our lifetime and uh giving i i think anybody in the voice acting industry will tell you there's i i don't think there's anybody like him i think he is extremely unique and uh what a treat guys what a treat please check out his classes and the trailers for all of his uh stuff about mythological creatures and all that stuff it's a fantastic watch I really think you'll enjoy it. Hopefully, he'll be doing more of that, like he said. I was actually really curious to to hear if he wanted to go further in that. Um, what a great episode, guys. Thank you so much for everything. Please like, subscribe, all that good stuff to make sure other people can see this who are interested in what we talk about here. Um, and a review on any of the platforms would be great. All right, y'all. We'll see y'all in the next one. Thank you so much for being a paxer. Sorry, Joe. I stole that from you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.